All right, so Starcade 84 is done. Uh, thoughts on the overall show, guys? We said Starcade 84. Oh, good gosh. <laughs> Thank you. You know, okay. it, it was done. Oh, you know what? I actually, I literally wrote that in the Gene Okerlund line earlier, too. Oh, wow. I actually wrote Starcade 84. <laughs> I don't know why my mind went to that show specifically, but okay. Hello everyone, and welcome to Let's Go to the Ring, where we take a look at the good old days and not-so-good old days of World Championship Wrestling, series by series. I'm your host, Bob Moore, and before we start our show tonight, I've been asked to hand out these beautiful gold rings in recognition of some special achievements. For reaching 1,000 posts on your blog, Alec Pridgen, here you go. Wow, this is definitely real and definitely in my hand. (laughs) What What are you at now? Way more than that. (laughs) <laughs> I It's in the thousands. I don't know. Uh, well, I'm sure the ring will arrive any day now. Oh, yeah. And for your excellent performance as Simon Stimson in your high school production of Our Town, John Mullins, here you go. Thank you very much. I will not be pawning this for alcohol. <laughs> Tonight, recording amongst my massive moving boxes, we're taking a look at Starcade 93, the 10th anniversary, featuring Ric Flair putting his career on the line against Vader for Vader's WCW World Heavyweight title. But that's not the only World Heavyweight title on the line tonight. Last time, we discussed how, because of Ric Flair's temporary exit from WCW to work for the WWF, the NWA World Heavyweight Championship and the WCW World Heavyweight Championship ended up separate for the first time and WCW decided, what the heck, we'll have matches for both. But there's a new twist. In July 1993, Ric Flair made his triumphant return to WCW and won the NWA World Heavyweight Championship from Barry Windham. But in September 1993, WCW wanted to have Flair lose the title to Rick Rude, and the NWA wasn't happy with that. WCW decided, you know what? We don't really need the NWA anymore, so they withdrew. But obviously, if you're no longer in the NWA, you can no longer use the NWA championship, right? Sure. That makes sense. But WCW still owned the big gold belt, which had represented the NWA championship. So they still had the match, and they just didn't mention the NWA. Then WCW declared that the big gold belt now represented the WCW International World Heavyweight Championship. So Rick Rude, NWA World Heavyweight Champion, was now Rick Rude, WCW International World Heavyweight Champion. Now, what the heck is an International World Heavyweight Championship, someone might ask. I sure did at first. But that's the wrong question. The right question is, what is WCW International? Because this belt's confusing name is not declaring someone an international world champion, it's declaring them the world champion recognized by world-famous wrestling organization WCW International. Which didn't exist. (laughs) Why WCW decided that their fictitious other promotion for their other title should also be named WCW just with a needlessly confusing extra word tacked on is beyond me, as is why this title lingers for the better part of a year. 
This could have been a relatively graceful break with the NWA. Sure, call the belt by another name, claim it still has the lineage, but just hold a unification match as fast as you can, get the whole thing over with. But no, WCW decided confusion was the better part of valor, so the WCW International World Championship runs all the way from September 1993 through June 1994, with eight different title reigns split among four different wrestlers during its life. It even gets vacated once, but we can talk about that whenever we go through Slamboree. WCW, weirdly complicated wrestling. No, I thought WCW was like, why change wording? (laughs) Nice, that's good. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Every time I hear it, I think of the American Dodgeball Association of America from Dodgeball. Mm-hmm. And every time they say it, they go, American Dodgeball Association. There's a slight pause, and they go, of America. <laughs> they realize as they're saying it out loud that there's two Americas in the name. <laughs> What's funny, too, is so WBF has a fictitious character who runs the thing, since Vince McMahon's not official character at this point. And then, you know, Jack Tunney. WCW doesn't have a Jack Tunney character. No. You do occasionally hear from the WCW board of directors. Right. Like last year from Eric's special report, he mentioned them. But yeah, there's this no... This is a different board of directors, though. Yeah, this is the WCW International Board of Directors. Yes. Which is apparently a separate organization from WCW. Because reasons. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's that's There's not really anything you can say about it. Yeah. Is there? The only way I could think of making someone like this logical in any way, and it's still kind of cheating, would be if you're going from a national promotion trying to advertise that you're, you know, so big that are international. So you can make international world title in which, you know, all the new foreign wrestlers might be competing for trying to into like here's a guy from here, here's a guy from somewhere else. But no, it's <laughs> I mean, there's what, if I remember, there's one Japanese winner of this title, yes. correct? Yeah. The other three it's are basically already... Rick Rude, Ric Flair, Sting, and one guy whose name escapes me at the moment, who's from Japan. Hiroshi Hase, I, I think, think his so, name is yeah. something like that. I'm probably pronouncing it wrong, but, you know. <laughs> he's, not, he's probably not listening, so. Yeah. Starcade 1993 was held on December 27th, 1993, at the Independence Arena in Charlotte, North Carolina, in front of 8,200 fans, 7,000 paid, with about 120,000 pay-per-view buys. So we're up a little again from last year, which is good. We opened with a touching tribute to the career of Ric Flair, showing childhood photos, newspaper clippings from the plane crash he suffered early in his career, and then a series of clips from his Jim Crockett promotions and WCW career, which is startlingly interrupted by a shock transition to Vader's face as he makes an audio-distorted monster roar. (laughs) Kind of love that opening. (laughs) Gets across the point there, doesn't it? (laughs) Yeah. Tony Schiavone welcomes us to Starcade 93, the 10th anniversary of Starcade. As much as I love the opening to this show, it is a little weird that it was last show that got the Let's Show All the Starcade titles intro, while this one has the emphasis of the 10th anniversary. Well, almost all the Starcade titles. Oh, y- yes, yes, true. They did, they did actually omit a few. <laughs> Tony oddly introduces his co host as the man he, quote, still believes is Jesse the Body Ventura. Is that in doubt? Was Jesse replaced by a clone? Is this Invasion of the Jesse the Body Snatchers? Maybe they had some big thing where he was replaced by a robot, and then, you know, they start fighting, and then poor Shivani, he's got a gun, and he can't decide which one to shoot, and he's not sure. Oh, okay. So he's, there's still a hint of doubt in his 
That's that's really dark. So 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 he did shoot one of them. Is oh yeah. So Tony is hosting this show with this this dark burden on him that he may have shot his actual co-host and be hosting with his evil robot clone. Correct. That that's that's really dark and it's not sad. Murder if you replace him with someone that looks similar. It isn't. <laughs> it's not provably murder. It's oh, okay. The same name. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Oh, okay, that's um, that's disturbing. Well, you know, maybe the family will like them. I don't know. <laughs> As we were just talking about the whole confusion of WCW International and WCW, maybe that's why there's two Jesse Bob Venturas. One was hired by WCW International, and one <laughs> is WCW. <laughs> He's the WCW International Jesse the Body Ventura. Correct. Wow. Did you call him the international body of wrestling then? Yeah, I'd go with that. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's ridiculous. Jesse, whether he's the real Jesse or not, brings up this being Flair's hometown and says that if Flair can't beat Vader here, he'd never be able to beat him. Tony throws to footage of Vader and Harley Race coming to this arena earlier in the day in a surprisingly normal car. I don't know, I just always picture Vader riding in, you know, like a Hummer or something, not a mid-sized light gray family sedan. It's just really normal. Would it be better if it came in a minivan? I mean, at least, I don't know, it looked kind of more sized. Mm-hmm. He could come out of the back sliding door. Clown car. A clown car? Yeah, it'd make him look that much bigger when he's able to get out. <laughs> if he's able to get out. Maybe he just rips the car apart to get out. <laughs> that, there you go. That would be an entrance. Vader, in any case, proclaims that they're going to have a party tonight, but Harley tells him, just keep focused. Vader has a jacket for a Ribera Steakhouse. Yeah, so that is a really big thing in the wrestling community. It's just some place in Japan that is associated with wrestling really heavily. Basically, if you wrestle in Japan, at any point, as like a major star, you have a jacket for that. Hmm. You can even go on WWE.com. And you can see they have a link of people wearing them, including more recent ones of John Cena and uh, CM Punk, proudly showing off their reverse steakhouse jackets, along with their fanny packs, to truly <laughs> set the stage for what era they're from. That is kind of cool. We close with footage of Vader training in the ring before the show and making growly bear noises. Unusually, Flair hasn't left for the arena yet. So Tony throws to footage of Mean Gene Okerlund, the legendary WWF interviewer who came over to WCW this year. Okerlund is at Flair's house, watching Flair say goodbye to his wife, Beth, and his kids Reed, David, and Ashley. All three kids went on to be wrestlers themselves, and we'll see them again in later shows. The youngest, Reed, sadly died in 2013. Ashley currently wrestles in the WWE as Charlotte Flair. Rick says an extended goodbye to Reed and Ashley as his chauffeur carries out his bags. It's honestly pretty touching. Gene says he'll wait outside and tells Rick to say goodbye to his family, in much the same tone of voice that you'd get from an old general coming to recruit a man from his old unit for one last war he probably won't return from. <laughs> the whole thing is very sweet, but feels a touch overdramatic. Beth accompanies Flair to the door, and they share hugs and kisses, then Gene escorts Flair away. Flair's wonderful flowery tie and the very nice Christmas decorations in the background slightly undercut the drama. As they walk to the limo, Flair and Gene discuss the seriousness of the match and the worries of Flair and his family. Flair says that his family is worried for his safety, and he's worried too, but for him, it's about whether he can prove that he can still do it. 
Gene builds up how much damage Vader does to its opponents, and Flair says he knew what Vader could do to people before he signed the contract. Tonight, Flair proves to himself that he's the man he thought he was. I thought this did a pretty good job of building up Vader as a pretty serious threat. Mm-hmm. Flair and his family aren't just worried about the title and whether Flair can win the match. They're worried about whether Flair will be the same man coming out of the match that he was going into it. And as much as I joked about the long goodbye and how it very much felt like the opening of a war movie, it works for me. Flair's very subdued tone in his comments, after all the times we've heard the boisterous Flair, helped drive home that this match was different. Unlike Starcade 83, where it felt like Flair just maybe didn't know what his personality should be in a babyface role, here it feels like this is still the Flair that we know, but just one that's very worried about what's to come. It got across a feeling of apprehension, and I thought it did what it needed to do quite well. It is a little weird that only Mean Gene sounds like he actually has a microphone on him, though. Everybody else is very quiet. Cutting corners a little bit, you know. <laughs> just a bit. That's why I couldn't get him to, him to the arena on time. There was just too much traffic. And, oh, we'll do we'll, we'll later. <laughs> I definitely see what they're going for. It is a bit melodramatic, but I kind of like it. In a certain, like what you're saying, it does build the drama, even if it's kind of silly, if you really think about it. It's a different feel. Sure. And that immediately sets this apart a little bit, sure. I think is why I like it. Yeah. I'm not going to say it's cheesy, other than it was cheesy. It reminded me of like like a not scripted as well, Die Hard opening. Uh-huh. <laughs> Or like something like a movie that would, uh, uh, oh man, Mel Gibson, I forgot all about him. It would be something like a movie that would have maybe him or something like that. And then, you know, the kid gets kidnapped and the wife gets kidnapped and he <laughs> has to get them back before Christmas. Yeah, the very like 80s action movie kind of um, commando type of thing or something like that. Yes. Where it's, I was out of the war and the violence and now I'm going back one last time type of feel. Now, if he was, his name was Matrix... Or some uh, was was that Arnold's character? Yeah, was yeah that John the, John Matrix is John it? Matrix. Yeah. yeah, yes. Why isn't his name Matrix? Better than Flair. More importantly, why isn't why isn't your last name Matrix? I don't know. It really could be. Yeah, your, your name's John. Come yeah, on. John Matrix. John Matrix. Exactly. I still have. You know, my daughter has four names, and my whatever I'm having is going to have four names, and my wife has four names. I could be John William Matrix Mullins. That actually sounds really cool. Yeah. yeah. Actually, Matrix Mullins sounds like an awesome cyberpunk name. Yeah. Well, we haven't named whatever it is, so we can go by Max or Matt. Yeah. Matrix. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. Tempur-Pedic Matrix. <laughs> when Cyberpunk 20-whatever comes out, 20, 2070, is it? 2077, I think. 77. When Cyberpunk 2077 comes out, can I use Matrix Mullins as my character name? You can. Okay. <laughs> it's not syndicated. You're good. <laughs> That's on the Switch, right? Uh, no, I think it's on... <laughs> I know. Yeah. <laughs> it's the new Crisis, I hear. Yeah, probably. Buy a new computer. <laughs> it's time for the first match, so let's go to the ring. So our first match is Pretty Wonderful, Pretty Paul Roma, and Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff with The Assassin versus Two Cold Scorpio and Marcus Alexander Bagwell with Teddy Long. The referee for the match is Nick Patrick. WCW brought in Paul Roma in 93. Thinking he's going to be a big signing, they're going to make a big deal of him. They put him in the Four Horsemen, which is definitely one of the more controversial moves they ever did. As far as putting people in groups. But he leaves the Horsemen because he gets along better with Paul Orndorff. 
Unless you're the shared first name, I guess. Yeah, well, you know. And plus, you know, you can't trust Arn Anderson, so there's that, I guess. Yes. Weirdly, they team up as part of the Battle Bowl show, which takes place before this, because there's still one more of those, as well as on WWE Saturday Night, where Paul Roma turns on the tag partner, Eric Watts, which is definitely an upward move to yes. Paul Orndorff. Remember how you feel about Paul Orndorff. Oh, yeah, yeah. As to why they're fighting Scorpio and Bagwell, there's not really much on this. It's just their two teams and they're fighting. Oh, okay. Marcus Alexander Bagwell and Two Cold Scorpio, in orange and black, don't appear to have realized that Halloween is in October, not December. They do have a nice simultaneous flip into the ring, and a whole tag team secret handshake routine and even a little dance. Bagwell clearly watches Scorpio during the dance to make sure that he's doing it right, though. Oh, Marcus. Before their opponents enter, ring announcer Gary Michael Capetta rather randomly announces that Teddy Long is being given the Manager of the Year award. Why is this being given right before the match? Capetta brings out WCW Executive Committee member Gary Juster to present the award. Long thanks the fans who voted on the hotline for him and thanks his team. At least it's the Manager of the Year award for 1993, as opposed to for the prior year, so they're getting better at handing things out on time. I was wondering when I saw Gary Jester, like, what, was Hank Aaron busy? (laughs) Yeah. Orndorff has a wonderful glittery black and gold robe, and Roma has a less ornate but still somewhat sparkly red and silver jacket. Their manager is our old friend, Assassin Number 1, now just going by The Assassin. I still say he should have done what you said, Al, and gone by The Number 1 Assassin. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. His mask looks several sizes too small for his head. Well, you know, there's the start of many things we'll see throughout the show that they're celebrating the 10th anniversary of Starcade in maybe not the best ways. Yes. And to that end, I'm pretty sure he's probably wearing the same mask he wore at the first Starcade. Yeah. Where he, in fact, opened the show in a tag match. Yes, he did. Where he serves. And also, Assassin is referee Nick Patrick's father. Yes, he is. Yeah. I'm sure it's fine, though. Nick Patrick would never let that influence him. No, I mean, he's above reproach. He's far too trustworthy. Absolutely. He doesn't even like his son. <laughs> the Pauls attack, and a brawl erupts as the crowd chants Paula at the Pauls. Bagwell and Scorpio win that battle and get Roma out of the ring. Then Bagwell assists Scorpio in a pretty cool backflip kick to Orndorff. Scorpio goes for a pin, but Nick Patrick lets him know the match isn't actually started yet. As everyone gets back in, Jesse notes how weird it was that Flair waited until now to leave for the arena. If he's late, he misses the match and loses his career. He makes a good point. It's weird that we didn't get that set as an earlier today. Maybe Flair just wanted to make sure that his Christmas lights would show up. The match formally starts with Bagwell versus Roma, and the advantage tilts towards Bagwell. Roma accuses him of pulling his hair. It's good hair, too. Jesse thinks Assassin will win Manager of the Year for 1994. Scorpio and Bagwell trade off working Roma's arm as Teddy shows the skills that got him his award by yelling at Bagwell to stay on the arm. A lot. Bagwell does so. It is Bagwell. He does probably need the instructions. Yeah, yeah, he probably. Roma eventually catches him with a body slam to escape to Orndorff, who just charges in to get arm-dragged himself, and Bagwell and Scorpio work on his arm, too. We get a shot of Assassin outside the ring just kind of standing there motionless, so that was valuable. Thanks. Mm -hmm. Orndorff and Scorpio go back and forth a bit, and Scorpio gets to show off some of his acrobatics, leading to a flying head scissors into a strange kind of pin that isn't counted as Patrick informs Scorpio that Orndorff's shoulders aren't even down. Scorpio transitions it into a submission hold like that's what he was always planning, and the crowd chants, Whoop, there it is, because it is the 90s. 
Did Gary Dester come and give them uh, the award for chant of the year? There should be no awards for this chant. <laughs> Saying. Longevity or nothing else. Yeah. Attack to Bagwell, and Scorpio holds Orndorff for a Bagwell splash that lands on Orndorff's upper thighs. At least Bagwell isn't as heavy as PN News. Yes. I think he was just worried about hitting Scorpio, but over-adjusted. It gets two. Back to Roma, who just gets taken right back down with a drop toehold, as I can see those Manager of the Year awards coming for Assassin already. Roma sells an atomic drop cartoonishly, then sits up, a la Nightstalker, during a high-jumping splash from Scorpio. At least it wasn't Vader coming down this time. Roma proves he's a master of selling during an arm hold by bellowing, My arm! He's hurting my arm! (laughs) I think that's kind of the point. (laughs) He didn't even say which arm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's just doing his part for the blind community, letting him know what's happening in the ring. Okay. Tony mentions that people can talk to the winners tonight on the WCW hotline, and Jesse wonders why the losers don't get on there. Someone might want to talk to them. They theorize that being on the hotline is part of the reward for winning a match. What a weird bit of commentary. Yeah, that's not a reward I'd ever want. (laughs) Yeah. Tag to Orndorff, and he turns the tide. Orndorff tries a body slam, but his right arm seems to go out, and he drops Bagwell, safely, fortunately, and hits an elbow drop instead. I feel like that was a blown spot, though they have been working on the arms all match, so maybe? Yeah, I'm not sure on that one. The Pauls fake a tag while Patrick's back is turned, and Roma gets a pretty nice series of backbreakers before arrogantly letting Bagwell fall limp to the mat. Roma lets Bagwell up on a pin to try a big splash off the top, but misses and sells like someone punted him in the crotch. Tags to Orndorff and Scorpio, and Scorpio runs wild as Bagwell prevents Roma's interference. Assassin climbs up, so Scorpio decks him. Scorpio slightly botches, climbing up for a head-scissors takedown in the background as Assassin loads his mask. Yep, that's back again. Yep. Scorpio brings Orndorff back over near the Assassin, going up for another head-scissors. But Assassin headbutts him, and Orndorff gets the pin. The replay shows the headbutt again. Doesn't look like much of a headbutt from the other angle. Thoughts on this one? I mean, we've had worse tag openers for the show, for sure. Yeah, for instance, the Starcade 83 one with the Assassin. <laughs> Correct. Although, they're definitely less knee-wiggling in this match than in that first Yes, match. yes. Always a bad sign. <laughs> so, John, you're, you're watching going, oh, the knees are stationary. This match is not going to be good. Usually. <laughs> it's good to know. It's just nothing special. I mean, Paul Roma's okay. He's always been okay. Other than one instance, he doesn't really have a truly bad match. Not like something I stand out as being bad. Same with Scorpio, same with Orndorff. I was, his track record's a little better. There's just nothing special about this. Scorpio definitely tries to do his most to uh, do something impressive and flashy, because otherwise the match is really dry. Yeah. The finish is definitely awkward because I feel like it's the assassin hasn't done head butt butt in a while, or at least he acts like it, because he has to sort of climb in the apron, awkwardly put his thing in there. He walks up, and it's like hold on to like Scorpio's shoulder for a second to aim his headbutt yes. properly, and then barely do anything. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not the worst tag match opening. It's got of action. It's less confusing than the '91 match where the teams didn't get along, but it's just not great. So it's okay. I kind of mirror what Al said. You know, it wasn't like a real standout match. There was some 
some good athleticism. I actually like some of the small spots where uh, Scorpius, uh, Scorpius, <laughs> Scorpio <laughs> and Bagwell did the whole, we'll both lay down, we'll both jump over you, you know, then we'll do a, a combination. I mean, it was obviously rehearsed, but it was nice. I always like watching Scorpio. Oh, yeah. Even though I call him Scorpius. This is the dawning of the age of Scorpius. <laughs> I don't like matches that end with controversial, you know, cheating. And I felt the same way Orndorff did. You know, I was tired. He didn't. He wasn't even like really pinning him. He was just laying on him. Yeah. <laughs> like I was, done, I was ready for the match to be over as well. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I was happy to look forward to the next long-winded match. <laughs> yeah. I think I'm in the same place as you guys. This isn't necessarily a bad opener, but it's longer than it really needs to be. The faces spend an enormous amount of time working the arms of both heels, interrupting only briefly here and there for some admittedly pretty fun spots. The arm work wouldn't bother me if it had led to much of anything other than, possibly, Orndorff dropping Bagwell on a slam attempt, which I still think was a blown spot rather than part of the story. Mm-hmm. There's a few botches that drag this down a bit. And Roma's selling just generally didn't work for me in particular, which is bad as the match asked him to sell quite often. Oh, yeah. Conversely, his arrogant character work was pretty good, and there's a clear story towards the end of him being his own worst enemy. Scorpio, I agree, got in some good-looking acrobatics and kicks, but otherwise this felt pretty basic. I did not like the ending one bit. I knew Assassin would be headbutting someone with a loaded mask, but it feels pretty contrived that Scorpio just decides, yeah, why not do a head scissors right next to Assassin when that'll lean my head right towards him and he's known for headbutting people? There's four corners, and you pick the only one vulnerable to that trick. You have no one to blame but yourself. <laughs> it's a decent opener overall, but a little long and a little clumsy. I blame the cameraman. Just wanted to get a good shot in. It's a fair thing to blame on a WCW show in general. <laughs> yeah, Jackie Crockett getting in on the action. Yeah. <laughs> It's interesting, thinking about it, as you're describing how much they work on the arm, given that Paul Orndorff's in the match, yeah, and the whole thing with his arms, and how they're not exactly the same. Yeah. Paul Orndorff was a good guy for a while in the early 80s WWF. They had him turn heel on Hogan at the early days of Hogan, Hulkamania, and all that. However, during the same period of time, Paul Orndorff injured his neck, and he's told, you have to get surgery to fix this spot in your neck, where he's putting pressure on your arm, and all that stuff, neck injuries do to you. He has a choice to make. Do I get my neck fixed, prove my long-term health, or do I wrestle a series of house show matches and make a lot of money fighting Hulk Hogan at the biggest point of my career in, you know, like a decade? As you can probably guess, he chose the latter, to ignore his neck problem for quite a while to wrestle Hogan on house shows and MTV. So as such, one arm is not exactly the same size as the other. Yeah, you can notice if you look that one arm is notably smaller than the other arm. Which is because of nerve damage to that arm from the neck injury, he couldn't work that as much. The muscle just didn't get the same. Yeah. Hmm. But one thing you'll notice once you're looking for it. Hmm. I will say one thing for Paul Orndorff, though. He did predict Twitter pretty well with his hashtag. Oh, yeah. Wonderful. Forgot his yeah. pants. His, yeah, they, they have the number sign or hashtag for yes. you modern folks, the number one, and then Durful. Yes. That's great. <laughs> the Assassin's claim to winning Manager's Year in 1994 
would definitely not happen because this is his last appearance as a wrestling manager. Went out yeah. strong, I guess. Yeah, he'd have trouble winning manager of the year for 1994 without actually managing in 1994. I guess, yeah, correct. <laughs> he will appear on one show we will cover at some point in the future, where he's inducted into WWE's Hall of Fame, which definitely is not as prestigious as WWE's long term. To be fair, it, it might have been had they that's true had they won the war. So very true, very true. The team of Scorpio and Bagwell doesn't last too much longer. Tuco Scorpio tends to um, move around a lot in general in wrestling. He doesn't stay any place too long for whatever reason. He ends up back in his W mostly full-time through 94 and 95. Although he will appear on two random WWE produced shows because they produce a show for Triple Mania in Mexico where he happened to be working unrelated to WCW. <laughs> And he also appears at the infamous WCW Collision Korea, uh, because again, he was working for New Japan Pro Wrestling and not WCW. Huh. Interesting. Pretty wonderful do hang around, though, so they are fairly important for the rest of the year. So the one thing sticks out of this whole match, so nothing. Okay. We cut back to Ric Flair's limo. Gene says that this could be the last time that Flair rides a limo to the arena for a match. Flair says he can't second-guess himself now. He doesn't want to be on the outside looking in. He wants to be part of the sport. He's going to find out if he can do it tonight. Gene says if he wins here, he'll be the WCW champ for the 11th time. But if he loses, then it'll be the last time he wrestles in the ring. Flair says he doesn't want to think about that right now. Right now, he's riding with one of his best friends, Gene. Aw. Win or lose, his friendship with Gene is going to remain. How sweet. He says he'd like to spend these last moments more upbeat. Gene has none of that, and explains how worried he is for Rick and how he knows what it means for Rick to wrestle. Flair says Gene knows the competitor Flair is, the heart he has, and that he, hopefully, will not be denied. Gene says that Flair has provided great thrills and entertainment, and he hopes the career lasts forever. Flair says a fan asked him, If you're gone, who's gonna go woo? Flair says nobody gets to go woo but Rick Flair. And Flair's not going anywhere. And that's the bottom line. Because Nature Boy said so. <laughs> woo. Doesn't uh, Sting do a thing that sounds like a woo? Uh, it, it's more of a owl, I think, mm. when he does it. It's how scorpions sound. Yeah. Yeah. It's the well-known call of the scorpion. Yes. Almost like a wolf-like uh, howl, you could say. Possibly foreshadowing terrible events in the future. Yeah, maybe. Is there a long history between Mean Teen Oakland and Rick Flair I'm not aware of? Well, uh, not in WCW. Okay. <laughs> but in the WWF, Mean Gene interviewed Rick Flair quite a number of times. True. So, so I think this is one of those weird little call-outs to uh, the fact that they were both in another company without okay. ever actually saying the name of that okay. other company. So, but even if that's the case, Flair isn't in WWF for a super long period of time. No. So it's really, he just made... Really fast I guess they friends? just yeah they were just they were just good pals there. Okay, that's fine. Despite the fact that Ric Flair spent the entire time there as a heel, and uh, Mean Gene is generally a face announcer, but you know they looked beyond that. Yes. <laughs> See the man behind the woo. Yeah. It is also worth noting that they both began their careers in wrestling in the AWA and were there around the same time, though I'm not sure how much contact they actually had at that time. I thought this was, again, a good kind of somber discussion. It just doesn't quite feel necessary that we have this in addition to the bit that we had in the show intro. It kind of covers the same ground, and I feel like there was already a pretty effective buildup. 
I did like seeing Gene express his worries as a friend, and Flair's story about the fan was fun, but I don't think this really added all that much to what we got before, and it sapped the show of a little bit of its momentum. We had a moderately fast-paced match to open, but then this slowed things right back down. So it's not bad, it's just not as needed. Well, as long as we have a fast-paced second match, that'll even things out again. Oh yeah, yeah, true. One other note on the limo thing. Given the size, and we've, we see how big cameras are at this point, is that a pretty cramped ride, the limo, with a, some guy just sitting across the area from you, pointing a giant camera at you? Like three inches from your face. Yeah, there's not a noticeable difference in quality, so I assume they are using a regular TV camera there. Yeah. That's got to be a little uncomfortable for the cameraman. Yes. Then again, it's a WCW cameraman. He deserves it. Yeah. (laughs) I guess the plus side is they didn't make Jackie Crockett sit on the outside of the limo on a little step as they drove there. (laughs) Why am I always outside? That's my Jackie Crockett voice. I can't prove that that doesn't sound like him. Aha! (laughs) Point for me. (laughs) Match two is the Shockmaster versus one of the Colossal Kongs. The referee is Randy Anderson. Do we know which one? We'll get to that. Yes. (laughs) There's reasons. Okay. (laughs) King and Awesome Kong, the team of the Colossal Kongs, are two rotund fellows in masks and furry sleeveless coats. The announcer and screen text say that Awesome Kong will be fighting. Shockmaster, who has perhaps the most infamous debut in wrestling history, oh yeah, has a pretty basic garb right now. Its only notable feature being a white construction helmet. It's a far cry from his debut outfit, but let's leave it at that for now. Yes. We're generally focused on the pay-per-views, but at some point we will look at the clash he debuts on. That's something that has to be seen. Yeah. We can cover it with Fall Brawl. Then yeah, maybe, that good yeah. Show, yeah. Interesting note about that debut, though. Fred Ottman says in an interview on WWE.com that the coat that he wore for the Shockmaster debut belonged to one of the Colossal Kongs. Maybe that explains the feud. Maybe he yeah. got mustard on it or something. Yeah, he messed up the coat. Ripped a scene. <laughs> the Kongs both attack when Shockmaster enters. Jesse asks if this is a handicap match. He thought Shockmaster was just facing Awesome Kong. As he does, Ref Randy Anderson hustles a Kong out of the ring. Awesome Kong. Correct. Tony and Jesse share our confusion. Jesse spots King written on the side of the wrestler's tights and theorizes that the two mixed up their tights after showering. Tony wonders if the match is actually underway as there wasn't a ring bell. King Kong gets in some basic clubbing blows, but eats a big boot, clothesline, and, shocking, pun intended, flying body press. Awesome Kong gets on the apron, so Shockmaster slugs him, then body slams King Kong for the pin. Well, that was short. Awesome Kong comes in to splash Shockmaster, but Shockmaster dodges ages before Awesome actually tries it, and Awesome does it anyway, splashing King. There is no way that he didn't see that Shockmaster was out of the way. Tony tries to sell us on Shockmaster fighting off two men to get a big win. Jesse is still confused about which Kong was in the match. (laughs) Thoughts on this one? WCW. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I can summarize it in my three... uh pseudo-sentence notes. One, too short to be serious. Two, too long to be good. (laughs) Three, decent slam. Okay. Yeah, the match is not good. The visual of Shockmaster by slamming whichever Kong it actually is or is supposed to be is pretty good. He actually weirdly does a body slam on him easier than Paul Orndorff does on (laughs) Bagwell. Fair enough, yeah. Yeah. It's kind of funny. Again, getting to the this show is all about 10th anniversary of Starcade. This thankfully wasn't a tag match, because it would probably have been even longer. 
But all I can think when I see the comic coming out is Bob's favorite tag team we featured so far, the Zambui Express. Yeah. Match is better than that one. I'll give him that. Shorter than that one, for sure. I'm not sure I'd say better, but shorter, yeah. Okay. <laughs> This is either a reference to that match or to the tag match he had the skyscraper, which also lasted about 90 seconds. Yeah. Take your pick. Neither one's good. Thankfully, it's short because it's not good, but it's still not good, even at length. Yeah. You know, I think this is just a warm-up for the announcers. <laughs> you know, the crowd doesn't seem to mind, honestly. You know, they're it's cheering true, yeah. throughout the yep. whole thing, and, you know, they're, they're chanting when uh, Shockmaster gets up after doing a move, and I think everyone's genuinely surprised when he picks up Kong and <laughs> puts him down real quick. <laughs> it is what it is, and I thought it was just a little bit of slapstick comedy at the end. No harm done. Okay. Nothing really of note other than, hey, these guys had a little inter- intermissionary... <laughs> no, that's not a word. <laughs> Intermission-like match. Yeah, intermissionary sounds... It's not um... a position either. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Don't Google that, kids. No. Yeah, my question was, why does this match exist? It lasts like a minute and a half. It apparently has the wrong guy in it. It consists of a few strikes and a body slam. There's nothing really interesting to this match, and the only good thing I can say about it is that at least it was short. It was far more interesting listening to the announcers try to figure out which Kong was in the match than to actually watch anything that was going on. It was entirely pointless, and in my opinion, should never have been on Starcade. This kind of thing is fine on a TV show. Mm. If you want to give Shockmaster a squash win or something like that to build him up, you don't put that on on any pay-per-view, much less Starcade. Do you think that they maybe had a longer match planned, but since they sent the wrong Kong out, they kind of just did the, like, made it happen? I don't think so. I feel like this happened the way they planned. In fact, one thing I was wondering was if the whole Kong thing might actually be... Maybe that actually is intended to be a storyline thing, that they try and, like switch out, but at the same time, you'd think then they would protest when he pins the wrong one or something. And mm-hmm. they don't. It just ends. So I, I don't really get it. But no, I feel like the match went the way they wanted it to. Okay. It just, it's it's really super short and not good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the ending does look planned, so. Yeah. Or they, they really sold it. Yeah. I will say it won't be too mean to Shockmaster because I actually have met the real Fred Ottman. He's a very nice person, so I take nothing away from him for being this match, but mm-hmm. yeah, it's not good. He is the best part oh, of this match. absolutely. I, I will say, yeah, he's definitely the yeah. best part of the match. You, you mentioned the body slam. I liked his little uh, like crossbody. I was not expecting that from a guy as big as the Shockmaster, mm-hmm. so that was, that was kind of cool to see. Yeah, I can see that, yeah. He had the only two spots of remote interest in the match. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah. Shockmaster doesn't hang around WCW too long. They try to salvage his character in the wake of his debut and stuff that happens following that by calling him Super Shockmaster, which I guess is a riff on Super Shredder, maybe? I mean, they have Kevin Nash, so maybe. Yeah. He doesn't stay around too long, and he leaves in mid-1994, go back to WF very briefly. As for the Kongs, they were very much territorial wrestlers. They would move place to place. They're in WWE, I want to say, around six months. They are in what sounds like the worst match on a show called Battle Bowl, which is saying something because it's a, entirely a Battle Bowl pay-per-view. <laughs> I mean, you know what those are like. <sighs> so it's not surprising they don't hang around super long. You will, however, be able to guess the month in which they exit the company. January? Yes. 
So a good thing happened in January. Yeah, for once. <laughs> I guess you can agree with that, yeah. Matter of perspective, I guess. Yeah, sure. Also, question on the Kongs. Yes. So we've got Awesome Kong, and we've got King Kong. How did WCW get away with King Kong? Yeah, it's a good question. There apparently is some very confusing legal ground with the whole King Kong thing. Universal at one point tries to sue Nintendo over Donkey Kong. Oh, right. But apparently it's a weird thing where, like, they own some of the character rights because it's based on a book of some sort, but not the film right or something like that. It's very confusing. So, oh, weird. So there's not even clear who owned, owned 100% the right to the name. So I guess that's how they get uh, it right. Okay. And where there's lack of clarity and copyright, WCW shall enter. <laughs> Absolutely. Tony talks about Terry Taylor getting a win against the Equalizer in a dark match and builds up the upcoming title matches. Tony says that the British Bulldog, Davy Boy Smith, was supposed to be facing Rick Rude, but he's not here, and the boss will face him instead. Apparently, the boss faced Rick Rude as Smith's replacement in an earlier match, too. Tony throws to the outside cameras, and we watch Ric Flair arrive in his limo. Jesse says it looked like President Clinton showing up with a police escort in Big Limo, but then notes that in Charlotte, Ric Flair is more popular. And he has more money. For now. Mm. <laughs> I'm not sure where he gets his numbers from. <laughs> Gene says goodbye to Flair and shakes hands with him, and Flair enters the building accompanied by security. So our third match is Lord Stephen Regal with Sir William versus Ricky Steamboat, for Regal's WCW World Television Championship. The referee is Nick Patrick. Ricky Steamboat had won the TV title earlier in 1993, held it for quite a bit of time, and then he loses in controversial fashion to Lord Stephen Regal at a pay-per-view a few months earlier. So this is the return match for them. And then time since Regal, his whole gimmick essentially has been he survives matches. He fights to the time limit, taking advantage of the fact that TV title matches have a shorter set time limit, and he can exploit that as champion. So kind of the Tully Blanchard thing, from exactly. what I understand, yeah. Yes. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. <laughs> Absolutely. Open a movie theater. <laughs> Steamboat has gone full-on with the dragon theme now, with a harness with dragon wings on it that looks very Mortal Kombat. Or He-Man, I can't decide which. Sadly, Family Man has been replaced by a synth horn piece that does admittedly sound pretty dramatic. Jesse wonders if Steamboat can run on water like some lizards he saw in a TV ad, and asks Tony if he watches TV. Tony says that he watches videotapes of himself and Jesse. Okay. And look into there. Home movies. Sure. Stephen Regal has a super awesome supervillain cape in blue and red, and awesome, very, for lack of a better term, Regal music. Sir William, in suit and bowler hat, has an adorable little Union Jack flag. Did you recognize Sir William, John? No. We have seen him before under a different role. He was, in fact, superstar Bill Dundee, who we saw amazingly run along the top rope while facing Sam Houston at Starcade 86. He started wrestling in Australia, but was actually born in Scotland. Hmm. You guys are being Scottish to Australian to British. Yeah. Makes sense. Well, Australians came from Brit. Yeah. Yeah. He's just going back. Mm. Full circle. Yeah, full circle. There you go. Yeah. Coming back to Britain, definitely, having gone to Australia, definitely under his own free will. Yes. 
<laughs> Jesse and Tony discuss it being Boxing Day in the UK, and Jesse is confused and thinks that's a holiday for punching each other out in the backyard. Tony eggs him on and says that it's a day for settling differences. It's not. It began as a day for giving gifts to those who provided a service for you over the past year, but that tradition since faded, and now it's more just a public holiday, by my understanding. Tony points out that this is Steamboat's hometown currently, and thinks back to Flair vs. Steamboat for the world title in this arena in a cage match in 1984. Jesse claims he was barely out of high school then. Sure, if he'd been in high school for almost 20 years. Yeah, he was wrestling in WWF when he was in high school. (laughs) Yeah. Regal gives an excellent, angry glare to Steamboat as the match starts up. Oh, yeah. Regal repeatedly insists that Steamboat back off and hides in the ropes. Jesse points out that he wants to stall to take down the time limit. They finally lock up, and Regal pushes Steamboat's knee with his foot to get leverage in a nice bit that, as Jesse notes, the camera mostly misses. After Regal grinds his elbow into Steamboat's shoulder and ribs, Steamboat takes a while to recover, shaking his arm and staying away from Regal. I kind of wondered if that was legit, as Steamboat normally keeps the action going even when he's selling. They look a little weird, yeah, that odd pacing there. They trade wrist locks with some cool flip counters, and Steamboat wins that contest as Regal gives an awesome, angry face. Steamboat uses his speed and agility to get a few pin attempts. Regal gets an unusual cravat-style leg lock. Tony says that it's important for Regal to keep the faster Steamboat on the mat, and Jesse says holds like that are good for running down the clock, too. Some pretty good commentary there. Mm-hmm. Steamboat escapes via Enziguri and gets an armbar as the crowd chants, Break it! <laughs> Aggressive crowd. <laughs> they work around the armbar, and Steamboat maintains control, though Regal does impressively easily heft him into a fireman's carry, only for Steamboat to slip free and go back to the arm. The crowd hurls abuse at Regal and Sir William, so Sir William tells the crowd to be quiet and stand up for his tiny Union Jack flag. It gets a USA chant, of course. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I kind of love that spot. Steamboat counters Regal's escape attempts, so Regal finally punches free. Regal flees outside, and Steamboat follows, but Sir William tries to sneak up with his umbrella, so Steamboat goes after him, only to run into a Regal dropkick. Regal and Steamboat trade moves, and Steamboat flips out of a Regal head-scissors hold into a pin, but Regal impressively bridges out and smoothly twists around into a butterfly suplex attempt, but Steamboat twists around again to hit his own instead for two. Great sequence there. Oh yeah. Regal flees outside again, and Steamboat goes after him, but is grabbed by Sir William. Steamboat bashes their heads together and flings Regal in as time is running out. Sir William delays Steamboat a bit longer, and Regal dodges Steamboat's big splash off the top rope. Tony predicts that costs Steamboat the title. And indeed, Steamboat gets a bridging back suplex, but time runs out just as Regal lands. It's a time limit draw, so Regal retains. A battered Regal staggers off with his title, and with Sir William, as a frustrated Steamboat paces around the ring, and the crowd showers Regal with booze. Thoughts on this one? I really like this match. It reminded me a lot of what I think maybe they were going for, going back to the previous year's show with Chono and Muda, Mm -hmm. where you have a really in-depth technical match, but it also is really engaging. Yeah. Regal and Steamboat both, to their credits, do nice little touches throughout the match to show either their anger, their disdain, frustration. You always know what they're thinking and character at any point during the match. You ought to keep up with it. You never lose track of anything. Mm-hmm. That's what's great about it. Now, obviously, we've seen Steamboat since the, the first arcade. 
our expectations for him are pretty high. Thankfully, he does not let us down, which is nice. Yeah. There's worrisome when someone is so good every time that like one time they have to be bad. But <laughs> it's a really negative trait in humanity, I suppose. But you kind of expect it. But thankfully, he does not do that here. So this is really a show for Regal, I think, because Regal, if you're watching the show straight through, is not new. But compared to Steamboat, he is not the established character, especially in America, that Steamboat is. So he really has to prove himself to matching Steamboat's ability and style. For once, I actually really won't complain about the finish, because honestly, the whole match built to it really well. Mm-hmm. Every little bit like you were going over, where they rolled the outside, or even just in the last minute, two minutes of the match, where they keep stalling, keep distracting Steamboat, so he can't get in the ring, hit a big move, and win. That all plays into the time running out. So while I'd like to actual finish maybe Regal, like maybe pinning um, Steamboat off of that splash he tried to do, maybe. Mm-hmm. Arguably, I prefer it. I understand they're going for the idea that Regal has to keep escaping these matches. Mm-hmm. And Steamboat has to stay strong for this sort of thing to work. And if, hopefully come back four matches against him. And it's kind of the um, the TV title's personal storyline. True. That the time limit is very short for TV title matches. So you're kind of primed to be ready for more time limit draws with it. Yeah, that's So true. it doesn't hurt as much with that, I think. Yeah. But no, I really like this match. It was a really good showing for Steamboat, as always, and Regal really rose the occasion in a big show when he really had to. Okay. I agree that both of them did some great uh, work. Each had their own personal touches. It was a big change from the last <laughs> match that preceded it. Oh, yes. yes. <laughs> for with sure. lack of a time limit, you know, it wouldn't have mattered. <laughs> I, I do love Steamboat. Regal, you know, this is the first time I've seen him here. And, you know, I know who he is, but I think he did a great war of attrition kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Like, he would just put enough effort in, you know, like when Steamboat's pushing him or pulling him around, he just kind of goes a little bit limp. <laughs> mm-hmm. It seemed like he was dragging him, especially at the very end when Sir William's been mocking him and kind of prodding and just hanging out in his periphery, ready to poke with that um, umbrella. Finally, at the end, you're like, he, Steamboat's just done. And he hits them both and puts mm-hmm. them in, you know, like, oh, great. This, he builds up some pressure, just does enough to stay just out of reach. While the, all this is going on, like, the commentary kind of pulled me out sometimes mm-hmm. because they're like, Steamboat is no lizard. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. The, yeah. yeah. <laughs> they go back to discussing those things. Yeah. He's a derby crusher, a filthy <laughs> derby crusher. Or you didn't say that, but you know, like, <laughs> what, what the heck, you know? <laughs> but at the end, I had expected when he went up to the top ropes real quick, that, you know, it was going to be the end. But at the very end, I'm like, wait for it. And, and I think the, they could have done that last pause a little bit better. Like, maybe he could have got the move done before the bell rung. You know, he mm-hmm. still had him in the air. If he was on the ground and they only got to one or two count, when the bell rung, I think it would have been a little bit more impactful for me. Yeah. But, hey, after you've wrestled that long, it's really hard to get timing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Once you're just exhausted. I enjoyed it, and I understand why they had that outcome. I think it really builds up both characters. Mm-hmm. So, good match. You would have seen Regal in the WWF. Yes. When he was going by William Regal. Was it weird seeing him called Stephen and walking with a guy named Sir William? No. <laughs> Didn't bother me. All right. 
for me, this one had a little bit of a slow start, which I think was mostly storyline. They wanted to drive home the idea that Regal wanted to run out the clock, and that worked. Mm-hmm. Once it got going, though, this was really fun. Some really creative holds and transitions. They put on an excellent show with Steamboat's pure agility versus Regal's technical expertise. Not that Steamboat looked like any kind of slouch wrestling-wise. Oh, no. Mm-mm. Both were really smooth, and the moves got intricate and complicated in this one. It was fun to see how they get out of a hold because there was always something different. I really adored Regal's facial expressions throughout the match. He is unmatched in using those to become an absolute sneering villain, and it's great. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he looks so disgusted. <laughs> oh, yeah. God, he's so good at that. It's besmirched. Yeah. <laughs> besmirched my character. Yes. Steamboat, as always, had the crowd totally behind him here, and they were ecstatic when it looked like he was about to win, only to be crushed when time ran out. Like you guys were saying, I, I normally don't like the time limit draw thing, but I think it really worked here. They made it part of the match story and part of Regal's strategy. Mm-hmm. So I didn't end up minding that ending at all. Bit of a slow start, but a very good match once it got going. Yeah, I mean, the worst thing I can really say about it is they and this is really nitpicky, which is what happens in a match is good. Mm-hmm. When they try to do the bridge up arm lock spot they do, where you push off the match up, stay on mm-hmm. the pin, they don't quite get that right. Some people get that like 100% smoothly. They do manage to cover it, but it feels like the ref has to stop counting normally for a split second. Mm. They're not up at two, like springing up, like you see when other wrestlers, for instance. And that's like four seconds out of a match. Yeah. And they follow it up immediately with that awesome suplex twist around suplex thing oh absolutely. Too, so yeah. they like make up for it immediately <laughs> oh yeah it barely attracts from anything which it's worth noting that it match that good that that's something that small has to be critiqued because mm-hmm. yeah absolutely. i'm thinking more about the name change now so <laughs> i you know honestly it's like the roads i i know that you know there's dustin and dusty and daryl and so the brother daryl <laughs> uh, they're all the same clone. I, I don't know. I just don't see any difference between them. <laughs> and so if if Steven had a like brother or, or cousin that looked very similar to him and his name is William, I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> it doesn't help your, your issue that Cody Rhodes, or just Cody with the implied Rhodes at the end, because he can't copyright that right now, has gone back to his blonde hair. Oh, gal. <laughs> yeah. He's turning into the version of Dustin Rhodes. Gosh. See, why don't they have like the Rhodes Warriors? Oh my gosh! Yeah, yeah. If Dusty teams up with the road with the Ro- Road Warriors, now I can't the say Rhodes Warriors. Yeah, <laughs> they should call it the Rhodes Warriors. Yeah, that would be terrific. Yeah, the closest we got with that was when they team Cody Rhodes and Damian Sandow up. They were Team Rhodes Scholars. Well, that's pretty good too. Yeah. Regal's story continues the way it's been going. He will wrestle really strong technical wrestlers and just generally steal the show if possible. He has a match, I think it's on the very next show against Arn Anderson, so that's good. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> Steamboat on the flip side, he doesn't get to win the title here, but he would go on to challenge for both the world title and US title in 1994, so he stays busy regardless of being TV champion. Okay. Tony talks up the other title matches coming tonight. He's worried for Ric Flair, saying that Normally, he still sees Flair smiling and doing the woo, no matter what, but tonight he was dead serious. Jesse says he's not sure what Flair's worried about. Retirement isn't that bad. 
It's a win-win to Jesse. Flair either gets the title for the 11th time, or he goes out in style and retirement's fine. Tony looks doubtful and says that Flair's in the prime of his career. So was Michael Jordan, Jesse interjects. Jordan, at this point, of course, had recently retired from basketball and would spend 1994 playing baseball instead before ultimately returning to basketball in 1995 to continue being absolutely amazing. (laughs) It was like, oh yeah, that happened. (laughs) Yeah, that little reminder of events. They go further in a later promo to recover about other athletes retiring around the same period of time as well. Yes, a snapshot in time. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. Our fourth match is Cactus Jack and Max Payne versus Tex Slazinger and Shanghai Pierce. The referee is Randy Anderson. Cactus Jack is done with all the stuff he's been going on with Vader, which continued um, up until a couple months earlier. He forms an unlikely alliance with Max Payne because they're both weird, misunderstood guys who don't look like your typical wrestler, some body tights, you know, arm hawks and all that. The other teams, Slashinger and Pierce, are a fairly established team. So the most you really get out of it is that they figure they can get a big win over Cactus Jack because he's not in a solid, well-established team. Mm-hmm. They have the advantage going into the match. Ah, uh, okay. The most stereotypical cowboy gunslinger sort of music ever welcomes Slazenger and Pierce to the ring. Pierce wears a full face mask, which doesn't really fit the cowboy thing. From what I heard, Dusty Rhodes thought that the crowd would cheer him even as a bad guy because he was too handsome, so he made him wear the mask. If I were doing it, I would have gone with more of a Lone Ranger mask myself. It would have fit the theme better. It's also a real insult to his tag partner. He's like, no, no, you're (laughs) You're you're, fine. (laughs) You're ugly enough to be hated. People will hate you. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Sandstorm protection. (laughs) It's not Warlord 3000. No. Aw. Not the reference to that anywhere else. Oh my gosh, yeah. There's only one shed in the whole thing. If one one alcoholic drink. <laughs> it's blue. Incidentally, Shanghai Pyrrhus seems to be named after Abel Head Shanghai Pyrrhus, a relative of Henry Wadsworth Longfellow and U.S. President Franklin Pyrrhus. The actual Shanghai Pyrrhus moved to Texas by stowing away on a ship in New York and became an extremely successful cattle rancher. He died in 1900 and has a city named after him in Texas, and has been used as a character in several westerns. But why Shanghai? Nobody seems to agree on that, though one of the more amusing theories says it's because he had long legs and his pants were too short, so he resembled a long-legged rooster called the Shanghai Rooster. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. That makes sense. I went down a rabbit hole with that one. I was like, surely there has to be a reason for the Shanghai and then I found the actual person, and no one even knows really solidly the reason for Shanghai and his name either. Yeah. <laughs> also, WCW has misspelled Shanghai on screen during the entrance, forgetting the A in high. Happens many times. Shanghai. Yeah. <laughs> Cactus Jack and Max Payne come out to Jack's song, Mr. Bang Bang. Oddly, the... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You, you, you said it wrong. It's bang, bang. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Oddly, the song's lyrics say that he's not on a team, but he's using it for a team entrance. So, huh? Jesse says that people looking at Jack and Payne aren't sure if Halloween is over. Neither were Bagwell and Scorpio earlier tonight. It's fall. Actually, isn't it technically winter? It, when's, when's winter actually start? What's the winter solstice? Is that 
December 21st, I think. Okay, so yeah, it's, it's winter now. Yes. Oh. They got no excuse. It's the 27th, I believe, right? Yeah. Are we using the Julian calendar? Yep, the Julia Child calendar, yep. <laughs> Jesse and Tony also discuss Hooters for a while, because there's women from Hooters ringside tonight, and Jesse jokes that someone's going to cut his microphone off if he gets too X-rated. Okay. Pierce and Payne start off, with Pierce landing several moves, but Payne only needs to knock Pierce down once to send him crawling for the tag. Slaginger and Jack in, and Tony and Jesse mention Jack's injuries at the hands of Vader earlier in the year, asking if Vader could do that to a super tough guy like Cactus Jack, what might happen to Flair? Brawling goes Jack's way, and he and Payne trade off a bit working Slaginger's arm. Jesse compares Jack and Payne to mutts that you find in a back alley eating garbage, but still turn out to like. Very strange commentary in this match. Pierce saves Slazenger a few times, but Slazenger can't actually make a tag until he finally gets a one-handed bulldog on Payne. Tag to Pierce and he starts to take over, but Payne dodges a haymaker and hits a belly-to-belly suplex to tag Jack. Jack batters Pierce and makes weird noises and headbutts him. Jesse says that's gutsy because, as we saw earlier in the show, masks like that could be loaded. <laughs> Slazenger comes in, but that brings Payne in. Jack takes Pierce and himself out over the ropes with a massive clothesline, then pulls the ropes when Slazinger ends up leaning on them to send him out too. Jack goes in and tags Payne while both are in the ring, but it seems to count, which is weird. Payne back body drops Jack over the ropes. Jack hits the apron with his ribs, then kind of accidentally axe kicks Slazinger, which couldn't have felt good for anybody. Yeah, it's very it's very generous to say that. Max Payne back by drops from the ropes. He kind of just drops him. He kind of just stands there and taxes Jack, does the whole jump himself over it. Yeah. Basically. Back in, Pierce gets caught in Payne's painkiller arm lock, but Slazinger saves. Payne counters a double clothesline with his own and tags Jack through the ropes, which also counts. Come on, Randy. Nick Patrick wouldn't stand for that. Pierce and Slazinger double team Jack, but Jack dodges a clothesline and Pierce knocks Slazinger out of the ring. Jack hits the double arm DDT on Pierce for the three count and the win. Thoughts on this one? So I'm kind of up to your mind on this because on one hand, the actual match is not super interesting. It's them hitting each other really hard a lot, doing some sort of decent tag work. They clearly have some ideas for that they want to try out, like the Max Payne um, double team move that definitely does not end well for Cactus Jack. Yeah, poor guy. There's definitely a lot of good parts to the match. Obviously, the finish is really good. Jack is really good at snapping that DT off. Mm-hmm. And they build up nicely that he counters the move and then hits it in quickly while, before they recover. Much as I don't like Max Payne based on having seen other matches with him from around the same time period, one of which he does really poorly in. He does do a decent suplex, I'll give him that. That mm-hmm. suplex he does looks pretty effortlessly. He did that pretty well. Again, kind of like the opening tag match. Something wrong with Slashinger or Pierce. They have decent little moments where they do moves, but I can't think of like a big moment where they stand out anyway. They're just kind of two guys that wrestle. They're fine. Yeah, my summary was one good moment for every two ugly ones. Like Cactus <laughs> Jack's fall of the outside. Yeah. Kind of mixed bag. Obviously, I was drawn to Cactus Jack for the most of the match. Max Payne is a new, new entry for me as well as uh, I have Texas Butte or Butt. Uh, mm-hmm. because because he has the emblem on his on his uh on his posterior, yeah yeah so on his butte yeah 
Is boot. Yeah, boot. Anyhow, mm. that's what I was going for. Thank you. You're welcome. There wasn't really a lot about this match that really intrigued me. Like when Cactus was up, I was happy. Tex and and Shanghai. I don't think they added to the match. I'd rather have watched Jack and Payne fight. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> I could see that. Yeah, yeah. And I actually expected them to. You know, because you know Cactus Jack. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's not had the best history with tag team partners in the past few shows. That's true. He? Yeah. <laughs> In the beginning of the match, he's like, I think he's yelling at, I think it's the ref, but I thought he was yelling at his teammate. Like, he's like, you shut up or something like that. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, he's like, stop it. I had no idea what was going to happen in this match. I did enjoy the double closer. That's what I named the double clothesline. And the DDT was done before I knew what he was doing. So <laughs> good ending, but I have more notes about the little next segment than I do about this match. <laughs> Okay. (laughs) For me, this felt a bit repetitive in the early going, but it got fairly creative as time went by. Perhaps a bit too much. That throw of Jack over the ropes onto Slazinger clearly did not go as planned. No. There was a good back-and-forth feel to this, and it kept moving. Lots of brawling, but enough other moves to keep things interesting, and a pretty good ending there. Jack has so much character, so that helped a lot. All the weird noises and mannerisms made the match more interesting when he was in. Payne seemed fine, but he seems to be kind of more outfit than personality. And Pierce and Slazinger pretty much could have been named opponent A and opponent B. Their ring work was fine. Pierce is a little stronger than Slazinger's, I think. But I didn't get much else from them. The tag work was pretty odd. I'm not sure why this match suddenly allowed several tags in ways that don't normally count. It felt really disorganized. And while the chaos could be fun, it also got kind of confusing to watch. This was fine, but it's not a match that I'm going to remember. Also, we got some of the worst and best commentary all night in this match. We get the comments on Hooters and weird fashion discussions, but we also get some excellent use of the Jack-Vader matches to build up Flair, Vader, and a throwback to the loaded mask angle to help build up Jack's character here. I will say it takes a little away from the overall mystique of the Flair. You may not escape this match, but let him win it. Given the hack Jack is wrestling on the same show. Point, yeah. I understand that that whole thing lasted a while, and I didn't want him to not be on the show, but it's just like, he could take anybody out. Here's Hacks Jack, that guy, I guess, didn't take out. Yeah. I mean, I think they do a good job of building up that Jack is just that tough. No, sure. I but, guess that. yeah, kind of implying that it will be worse for Flair. I completely get that, yeah. But it, it takes distracts slightly from that overall feel when you you see him on there. Yeah, I can see that. The other thing that's a little funny for me watching this now is seeing Max Payne do his painkiller, which is the exact same arm hold that Becky Lynch uses to much more success than he does now. <laughs> so it's a weird visual because Becky Lynch is a small redhead Irish lass who's really good in the ring. Max Payne is a very large, heavy set guy with long black hair, just like he's going to a rancid show. It's not picturing the same and doing this that move, but that is a connection between the two of them. Yeah. It's also a little weird that they get so distracted by his shirt. It has the skull with the mohawk on it. It has the skull with the mohawk, and they start talking about that. I think Tony says that'd be a good hairstyle for Jesse. Yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. Which was funny, but it's a weird bit to get on. Yeah. yeah. Jesse's like asked about what's on his shirt, and then the camera guy clearly gets the note yes. and starts zooming in. So he stopped watching the match for like 30 seconds to figure out what his shirt has on it. But on the bright side, that's a rare instance of a WCW cameraman being told to focus on something and actually managing to point the camera in the right direction. (laughs) That's true, yeah. 
<laughs> Broken clock is right twice a day. <laughs> um, so I go in more in the Cactus Jack Max Payne later. They connect to a later match. Tex Lazner, Shanghai Pierce. They leave after one last bit of TV tapings for WWE Saturday Night in Four. And guess what month it is? January. It is. It is January. <laughs> wow. Because of taxes. <laughs> <laughs> Makes it easier to calculate. <laughs> yeah, probably, <Exactly>. actually. <laughs> yeah. They go up to WF to become pig farmers. Pig farmers, eh? The Godwins, right? Yes. As Was it Phineas I. Godwin and... Uh, what's the other one's name? Henry Orpheus Godwin and then... Phineas, and I don't remember the middle name, but it's I, Godwin. Yeah. So it's Hog and Pig. Yeah. Okay. Never let it be said that the WWF didn't have terrible gimmick ideas. Yes. <laughs> We've already nixed Orpheus as a name for the next kid. If, if you hadn't, it'd be nixed now, I would imagine. Yes. <laughs> Tony throws to Mean Gene Okerlund, who promotes the WCW hotline, 1-900-909-9900, option 5, where we can vote if WCW title matches should be two out of three falls. What do you guys actually think about that? Two out of three falls or just single fall? I could see that for world title matches, because those are definitely the more prestigious. I feel it definitely would get too long if every title match Mm -hmm. was two out of three falls. But I could see it for the big matches. And that's how it was in world title matches back in the day. Mm -hmm. I would still go for option two, which is no. But... (laughs) If it was done right, I think it could be a good device. Mm-hmm. You get the first pin right away, and then that gets a turnaround, and then now they're tied up three quarters of the way through the match. Yeah. And then it's just this crescendo of throwing blows to see who gets the thing before the time runs out. You know, I think I think that's good. I don't know if they would use it that way. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm fond of the idea of two out of three falls matches myself. I think it's a good storytelling device. It gives you even more options. Mm-hmm. Like I don't, I don't know that I'd advise it for every single title match, but for an occasional match for kind of a heated feud or something where it's been going back and forth, and now we want to have a definitive ending, mm-hmm. making you win two out of three, it works. I think, especially if you had two popular people that are going up against each other, and you have a real divided crowd, you can still have an opportunity to make both of them look good. Yeah, true. Yeah, and kind of build up the match even more. Gene welcomes NASCAR racer Kyle Petty, who we last saw back at Starcade 84 as a very happy but ultimately pointless judge for the Flair vs. Dusty match that Joe Frazier called off. From just outside of town, one of the great ones, Mellow Yellow number 42, please welcome Kyle Petty! Kyle, as you know, we are all here at Starcade tonight. The big main event pits a favorite of yours, the nature boy, Ric Flair. He has put his entire career on the line to challenge Vader for an unprecedented time to become the WCW heavyweight title. You had a retirement recently in your family, and I wonder, Kyle, if you could share some of your thoughts about your father's recent retirement with us. Well, I tell you, you know, my father's just like Rick. You know, they, he's done it so long, this is all they've ever known. You know, and that's all my father ever knew was driving a race car, and this is all Rick's ever known is, is wrestling, you know, so... Uh, when you start putting that on the line, I mean, you're putting a lot on the line. You know, Richard Petty's retired and he's sitting at home, but he's a different Richard Petty than he was when he drove a race car. And, you know, you hate to see anybody go out at the top of their game. And, you know, Rick's definitely at the top of his game like uh, 
you know, Michael Jordan and those guys retiring this year at the top of his game. And, you know, I hate to see anything like that happen. So I hope it doesn't happen tonight. Well, I'll tell you one thing, Kyle, you are in the thick of it all. And, of course, uh, you have done so very, very well. Uh, you've got a career ahead of you just like if Ric Flair were to win tonight, he would have a career ahead of him. Yeah, definitely so. He's had a career. He's got a career behind him and ahead of him, you know. Uh, I've, hopefully a lot of mine's still ahead of me. But, uh, you know, like I say, I would hate to think that I had to go to Daytona and win that race. And if I didn't win that race, I was going to have to retire. All right, ladies and gentlemen, if we look to 1994, Kyle Petty, I want to thank you very much. The best of luck to you next year. And I know these great fans are looking forward to seeing the gigantic main event here tonight. Don't forget, call the hotline. Tony, let's get back to ringside. I thought the uh, thoughts in the promo got a bit jumbled here and there, but it was a good use of Kyle Petty. Much better than at 84, though he seems just as happy to be here. He's used pretty effectively to build up how much of a loss it would be for Ric Flair to have to give up wrestling here, and he again pulls in other major sports figures to talk about how much the competition means to them. So I really liked this. It was a good use of celebrity to build up the show's themes, I thought. Yeah. I didn't know how they got Weird Al to play him, but it, <laughs> you know, it was good acting. <laughs> it does look like him, doesn't he? Mm -hmm. Yeah. People thought I stopped making movies after UHF, but no, they were wrong. Yeah. <laughs> I was getting more of a Yanni vibe from him. Oh, yeah, I, I could see yeah, that. Yep, yeah. No, he's, he's I don't want to say sacred, but well-known in, in my parts. <laughs> or, okay. no, not my parts. I meant, like, my area. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, that and Gordon. Yeah. Jeff Gordon. Our fifth match is Steve Austin with Colonel Robert Parker versus Dustin Rhodes in a two-out-of-three falls match, fancy that, for Rhodes' WCW United States Heavyweight Championship. The referee for this match is Nick Patrick. Yeah, the rivalry between these two have been going on for a little while. Austin sort of awkward transition out of being part of the Dangerous Alliance and all these other groups he's been part of. They can be aligned with like Root, for instance, we saw at 91 Circuit, I believe, mm -hmm. when they were tagging together. Dustin Rhodes actually ends up winning the title off of Rick Rude when the build up to this, as they mentioned later in the actual match. Steve Austin, um, his character has been protesting how the finish of the previous match went, so he got to be two out of three falls, so he couldn't face that kind of injustice again. Mm -hmm. And Dustin, being the babyface, agrees with whatever the heel wants, because that's what they do. Brave and stupid. Oh, yes. <laughs> he will always win, because good is dumb. <laughs> yeah. Austin looks much more like Austin now. Oh, yeah. For sure. Mm -hmm. He still has more of a glittery, shiny vest, but the hair is much shorter, and the trunks are plain black. He's still not Stone Cold, but I can at least recognize him as the guy that becomes Stone Cold. Correct. Rather than the Saved by the Bell pants. Yes. Before. <laughs> Jesse, looking back at the interview, says that he thought Richard Petty's son was Tom Petty of the Heartbreakers. Tony says that Jesse hasn't spent enough time in the Carolinas. <laughs> One of the silliest wrestling themes ever hits. <laughs> Dustin Rhodes, The Natural. Well, they call him The Natural. Natural. natural as can be. Yeah, they call him The Natural. Natural. It just comes naturally. He's the son of a son. son. And the son of a gun. The house doing a rodeo bulldog, that's a natural one. In 
have his shoes to fill, but he had to do it his own way. I love it. It's so stupid, but it's so catchy. <laughs> Dustin's jacket is also pretty awesome. Glittery white with red and blue. Jesse ruins everything by asking Tony if they could call the woman from Hooters at ringside a natural. Tony refuses to comment and quickly refocuses Jesse on how wrestlers pace themselves for a two out of three falls match. <laughs> Good job, Tony. <laughs> this is like the third match opening that they, he's talked about it. Yes. Yeah. By this point. Jesse has one thing on his mind. Product placement. <laughs> there you go. Think this is not Hooters Presents Starcade 1993. Road starts strong, frustrating Austin. A bionic elbow sends Austin fleeing outside to recover. Back in, he challenges Rhodes to a test of strength and sneaks in a boot to the gut. Rhodes out-wrestles Austin, but he easily finds the ropes to force a break, always seeming to know where he is in the ring. He stalls a bit outside again. Jesse wonders why Parker never lights one of his cigars, and Tony points out a lot of buildings now have no smoking laws. Jesse rants about politics for a bit. Rhodes counters everything that Austin throws at him, including a cool counter of a powerbomb into a backslide. Though Jesse points out that Rhodes ended up hooked the wrong way around due to the transition, which let Austin slip free. Good commentary there. Austin starts getting advantage and takes Rhodes outside, but Rhodes reverses a whip and sends Austin catapulting over the barricades. Austin signals for a timeout. Tony points out that Rhodes never chases Austin. He's the champ, so if Austin hangs out there too long, Rhodes will just keep the title. Austin gets back in and offers a handshake, but Rhodes decks him. Austin sneaks the cheap shot in on a corner break and takes control as Parker tells Rhodes that he's no better than his good-for-nothing old man. They trade some sharp strikes, and Tony says we're looking at two men who will dominate WCW in the next decade. It's a good eye for talent, but you've got the wrong company, Tony. Oh yeah. <laughs> Rhodes gets a nice sunset flip, but a Watts-esque dropkick. <laughs> yeah. Parker pulls Rhodes' foot on the pin, and Rhodes finally goes after him, and that earns Austin two and three quarters with an arrogant cover of a belly-to-back suplex. Austin wins a slugfest, but misses a knee drop and hurts his leg. Rhodes is bleeding from the nose, but hits a massive jumping clothesline and a great power slam for two. Parker gets on the apron, so Rhodes hurls Austin into him, but Austin spills over the top rope and out for the DQ, putting Austin up one to zero. Event staff take Parker away, as an angry Rhodes beats Austin up and throws him into the post, until Patrick makes him stop due to the rest period. Austin is bleeding. The rest period ends, and Rhodes takes Austin back in, but the lights go out as Rhodes comes off the top with a big flying punch. Someone thinks quickly and points a spotlight at the ring, as Jesse jokes about this being a dark match and seems very proud of that pun. He does, yeah. Rhodes suplexes Austin and gets two off an elbow drop. The lights come back on as Jesse says that he could have understood it if they'd been in Georgia when the lights went out. <laughs> Reba McIntyre's cover of that song was in 1991, Jesse. That's far too recent for a WCW pop culture reference. <laughs> Rhodes gets Austin in the corner and climbs the ropes for some punches, but Austin grabs the tights to slam him down and holds the tights for the three count for his second fall, the win, and the title. Thoughts on this one? This is kind of an interesting kind of point to me for the Steamboat Regal match, because this has the same sort of intensity, but they approach the match as more of a fight than a match, mm -hmm. which is interesting. It's much less about changing arm locks and pin holds, but more about hitting a guy and throwing him into things and slamming mm -hmm. him down. So it's interesting how you can sort of tell the same story, 
but also feel unique in, in that regard. Yeah, neat. absolutely. And obviously, the two or three fall stipulation makes it very different from a one fall time limit is super important match like that as well. This is obviously not the first time these two have met, and it definitely shows. Mm-hmm. They have natural chemistry together, so it's not a surprise that they do well together, but it's nice to see it. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of torn on the idea that the over-the-top rope DQ thing actually matters, <laughs> because it's still a stupid rule, and I still don't know why it existed in the first place, mm-hmm. but it actually does matter for the match, so I guess it's a positive. And it's actually, I think, a rather good spot how they use it, Yeah, that you needed something that could make it look like Rhodes was not in any way trying to cheat. Correct. But he ends up accidentally cheating. Correct. This is the one case, maybe, where I'm like, yeah, I'm pretty cool with that rule. (laughs) We finally found the one match where it's like, oh, it justified its existence for a moment. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, there's one other match, I think it's the match we get with Luger at some point a few years back, where that also comes into play, but it very rarely matters. Mm Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm glad it does finally pay off, but it's, I still don't like the rule as a whole. I yeah. still don't understand it. Obviously, the match is tampered a little, hampered, excuse me, a little bit by a couple of things. One of which is Austin very visibly blading for the camera guy knows to move away from him. <laughs> he lingers far too long. He's, he must really be genuinely wondering, what is Austin doing down there? Jesus. Oh, I should stop looking. It's like a few seconds longer than he should have been looking. You don't see it, but you see enough to know what's happening. And he gets up like, oh, that's what happened. They seem like they blame it on the steps, don't they? Like, he gets slammed into the steps. It's either that or I think Rhodes slams him into the post a few moments before yeah, that. Yeah, it's not that. The steps makes a little more sense because theoretically has a sharp edge to it, but yeah. And obviously the issue with the lights is 100% not their fault as far as I know, but it's definitely distracting, which is kind of weird. They power through it. They don't get distracted with themselves, which is nice. They don't, like, put on a hole and, like, wait for the lights. They act like it's normal. They just keep it going. Absolutely. My only real complaint is that the final pinfall where he pulls him down is a little sloppy. Like, he pulls him down and he, like, pins him, like, to the side. It's not quite as smooth as I would like that to be. Mm-hmm. I understand that it has to be a cheap pin. Maybe it shouldn't be super smooth because it has to be unexpected and you want it to look like Dustin should have been out of that if it had been a normal pin, but it just kind of sloppy finished, unfortunately, to me. Okay. Otherwise, it's a really good match, though. It's not a big detriment, though. I think I said boo several times during this match. <laughs> okay. Oh, okay. I enjoyed uh, Rhodes, and this is actually one of the first matches, like you said in the very beginning, that I can actually see Austin. Yes. Especially his facial expressions. I'm like, oh, okay, he's, he's going to do a stunner or something soon. <laughs> <laughs> or um, slam a, a beer. Anyhow, this match made me enjoy... Like, I enjoyed Steve Austin when I watched him in WWF. But I, I actually think that like this increased my uh, interest in Dustin. Okay. He seemed to be the more ag- aggressive of the two. Yeah, you know, I know that Austin got his f- first point by DQ. I, I don't. <laughs> I thought it was a silly setup, but it seemed like he was going to battle his way back, and I was disappointed that he didn't. This seemed like he had the upper hand, and then Austin just fell on him (laughs) 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 to pin you know (laughs) Mm -hmm. but you know he was holding tights and everything so i wasn't happy with the outcome yeah i I mean that's the intent dustin was totally robbed absolutely yeah totally for me i thought this was a really really good match Rhodes and austin put on an excellent show 
I thought they had a good story going on of Austin's ring savvy and tricks, and Rhodes' fighting skill, power, and temper. So as long as Rhodes stayed calm, he's kept largely in the advantage, avoiding mistakes like chasing Austin around outside where he might fall prey to a trick from Parker. Austin got in some hits, but Rhodes generally got the advantage back pretty fast, so he felt like the better pure competitor, though Austin was always portrayed as very capable of getting free of Rhodes when he needed to recover, and knew exactly where he was at all times. Mm -hmm. Great little elements to his performance that kept coming up and made it clear why Rhodes couldn't fully take him down. When Rhodes finally lost his temper, that did it. He lost a fall by his own mistake, got desperate to catch up, and left himself open to Austin's quick thinking for the second pin. So, like we were talking about, I'll criticize the -the over-the-top rope DQ thing. It's a silly rule and, as we pointed out, unreliably enforced, even tonight. Yes. But it worked well for this match, giving Rhodes an easy way to make a critical mistake in a moment of anger. The match storyline worked great. The only thing I can complain about is, again, a little too much reliance on the whole headlock into whip into shoulder block spot. Yeah. I've just started noticing that at some point, and now I can't stop. Otherwise, really exceptional match for me that blended story and action together really, really well. This is more of a side thing I find kind of amusing, which is Steve Austin, six million dollar man, and yet he's fighting the guy doing the bionic elbow. <laughs> That's a good point. Hmm. My only other thing, which is more of an actual critique than just random factoids, is that... So there's a match earlier in 93, back when it's still the Hollywood Blondes, and the tag titles on Sunday Clash, I believe. It's them against... I think it's Arn and Flair, so it's probably That's a really good match. Hollywood Blondes are Austin and Pillman, right? Correct. Sorry, yeah. There's Austin and Pillman against Flair and Anderson. And the story they build in that match is also a two or three falls match. But what happens is the horsemen win one pinfall, but the second decision is a DQ, and that means they win but don't win the titles. Mm-hmm. And yet, in this one, you get a DQ and also win the title. Yeah. Just another example of WCW not enforcing rules consistently. It's always a rule until it isn't. Yeah. For what it's worth, I think I prefer this version of the ruling. I, I think a DQ shouldn't matter as much in a two out of three falls match, because right. it's not going to change the entire not everything turns on that one decision. Sure, sure. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's a resolution to it in WCW's mythical rule book, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Was the DQ in that match on the second fall? I believe so, yes. So maybe it's if the DQ is the deciding fall, mm. then the DQ rule applies. I think that's the BS explanation for it. Probably. <laughs> hmm. You sound doubtful, John. I am. <laughs> Would you believe if WCW International told you that was the rule? There you go. Can we just go back to the match for a second? Sure. What happened when Dustin sucked all the energy out of the the arena and then channeled it into Austin's face? (laughs) Dimmed the lights. And then once he was thoroughly ahead, he restored power to the area. (laughs) Yes. That was my favorite part of the whole match. I did think it was legit impressive how well they kept going during that. Yeah. Because that's something that could throw you completely off. Oh, yeah. Especially when I think Dustin's about to do a top rope move when the lights go off, but he still just goes for it. Yeah. Very confident there. They still have one spotlight, I think. You know, like... They, 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 they don't at first, but someone, like, quickly points it at the ring. Yeah. Good good on that guy. Quick thinking. Absolutely, yeah. Should make him a cameraman. I'm sure he didn't work for WCW for long. Because <laughs> <laughs> he, he has too many brains about production. Oh, no, he... His reward was getting a job at WWE for life. 
He didn't know how long that would be. <laughs> no, a, a hockey rink follows the Zamboni. <laughs> awesome would prove to be a strong, notable champion as US champion, including a match against Great Buddha. Ooh, that could be cool. Yeah. We don't see in Starcade, I don't think, again for a little while, but he is still hanging around somewhere. As for uh, Dustin Rhodes, he would transition to a feud with a stable which sounds like a porn name, which is the Stud Stable. <laughs> yeah, I can see that, yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll get into that when we actually cover them in the show, but basically they're going for more of a we're all Texan, you know, stud rant kind of thing, but yeah, mm-hmm. it sounds like porn. Like a bunch of bulls. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I know what they mean, but I also know what it sounds like. Yeah. <laughs> Tony looks displeased with Austin's tactics. Tony and Jesse talk about the upcoming Rude vs. Boss match and how the boss has beaten Rude before. Jesse admits the boss has the momentum, but Rude has now prepared for the boss, so things will be different this time. Tony builds Rude up by noting that the man who Rick Rude beat to win his WCW International World Heavyweight Championship, I will never get tired of that name, was Ric Flair. So yeah, the title that Flair is going for tonight for his record 11th title win, I'm betting they didn't count his WWF ones in that total, but I'm not sure, is the WCW title. But we're also using Flair's previous reign with the WCW International title to build up Rick Rude. So that's not confusing at all. (laughs) At least Flair had... He was champion when they transitioned from the original belt. Yeah. Which has randomly come back again in 2019, which is kind of funny. (laughs) <laughs> for the end of way, it somehow still exists. But it transitioned from that belt to the big gold belt. So you can at least... There's no issue with him and the belt as far as reigns. But it's then weird that same physical belt changes names yeah. to somebody else. So our sixth match is Rick Rude versus The Boss for Rude's WCW International World Heavyweight Championship. The referee for this match is Randy Anderson. The boss is Ray Trailer, who we've seen before as Big Bubba Rogers. Mm-hmm. He's been away for a couple years in the WWF, making people serve hard time as the big boss man. I never realized that hard time was both featured in the big boss man's theme song and the Dusty Rhodes promo. Interesting. His name, of course, is a ripoff of his WWF name, The Big Boss Man. His outfit is almost exactly the same as his WWF outfit, just in black instead of blue. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, no surprise, but the WWF complained, and the boss got a gimmick change pretty soon after this show. What will he become? Well, we'll find out next show. And to be clear, the outfit he's wearing when he first beats Vic Rude in the match they reference, when it's non-title, is literally the same. It's actually the blue Powder blue, yeah. Oh my gosh. (laughs) <laughs> he just like it's like he literally ran out of one locker room and into their, their area. Did they learn nothing from Arachna Man? Jeez. <laughs> one of the big players in 1993 is the British Bulldog. He comes into big acclaim as a signing as WCW taking a star away from the WWF. But definitely won't be a big thing in the future. <laughs> He's involved in a lot of moments, including the Shockmaster debut, which we'll cover at some point. Uh, matches against Vader, tag matches with Sting against Vader. However, sometime around July of 93, he gets in an altercation, which is still some dispute over. Basically, he gets in a fight with a guy at a bar and severely injures the guy because British Bulldog is terrifyingly strong. There's 
question of whether or not he'll be sued over the assault and the fight, whether it's justified. British Bulldog also, because of his uh, personal demons, I guess, starts to become less reliable, showing up to every single show. So the combination of him possibly facing actual legal trouble, which I don't think actually does go anywhere long-term, and just not being reliable leads to the higher-ups uh, releasing from his contract, which they don't actually acknowledge in company. <laughs> what they do is, on the December 8th WCW Saturday Night Show that they're referencing, Fish Bulldog is supposed to show up. They have a guy, I think it is Gary Jester again. There's so many generic, faceless business guys in wrestling, I can't keep track of all of them. Basically says that British Bulldog has a 10 count to show up for the match, even though he knows full well they fired him a month ago. Okay. He doesn't, so Rick Rude comes out and celebrates, and then Big Boss Man, or should be The Boss, comes out and they get into a short fight, which The Boss wins. So they quickly pivot away from obviously the story going in three weeks before the show to, hey, here's a guy he's fighting now. You do what you can, I guess. No, yeah. It's a really awkward pivot. That's as good a transition as you can expect from them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm surprised they didn't wait till the, the show of, like they did with Rick Rude last year. Yeah. The boss's entrance music has a siren that I'm pretty sure they reused later for Scott Steiner's entrance theme in the late 90s. Mm-hmm. His music is pretty great, though. Very 1970s cop show. <laughs> <laughs> and he looks in much better shape than when we last saw him as Big Bubba Rogers, too. Yeah. Rick Rude, out in his blue and silver robe, now has a ridiculous vocal theme song, too. Though I am sad about this one, as I'd much rather have the old film noir detective theme. He's mm. <laughs> my ringtone. Really? Is really your ringtone? No, so that, so that needs to be my ringtone. <laughs> oh. Yeah. It, will, it will happen soon if I can find a copy. <laughs> yeah, that was great. <laughs> what was your comment, John? I, I think I needed a shower after hearing that. Yes. <laughs> that great. The mustache is back, though, so all is right with the world again. Amen. That's all you need. Rude calls himself the undisputed world heavyweight champion, which, no. V- very no. Yeah, mate, there's two of you, so that's definitely yeah. disputed. Yeah, this is one of two shows, I think, for Starcade that we'll be covering where you can't say that. <laughs> Correct. We need to talk about Rude's tights. Why? They're a normal sort of design at first, but halfway down the legs, they look like they tear away to reveal another design that makes it look like Rude has robotic legs. <laughs> Are robots particularly ravishing? Yeah. I mean, if this was Steve Austin wearing long tights, that would make sense. Yeah. But not for Rick Rude. <laughs> I don't know. Has, has Rude been putting on, like, a bunch of muscle or face weight? And now he looks like Hager from Final Fight. <laughs> for sure, yeah, yeah. I can absolutely see that. He should have he done the windmill. That would have helped. There's actually a point during this match where Boss is punching Rude over and over, and... uh Jesse says that that's what you do to prisoners who don't want to talk. And Tony says, Jesse would know, being the mayor of a city. So I I had written, I'm guessing Tony's only knowledge of mayors is Hagar from Final Fight. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there you go. Michael Buffer does the introductions, saying, The match is recognized by the WCW International. That the still shouldn't be there, even for the fictitious version. Unless, is the WCW International a hotel? Yeah. Kind, of, kind of sounds like a hotel name. That'd be kind of cool. Maybe they're going for something more 
prestigious or inclusive. Maybe not inclusive, just... Yeah. Boss makes crazy eyes and shouts at Rude to back him into the corner, as Rude cowers and the crowd loves it. Boss tries a surprisingly quick kick, but Rude backs away from that too. The two lock up and wildly roll around the ring ropes, and Rude cowers again, so Boss spits on him. Rude finally gets a cheap shot in the corner and lots of big right hooks to Boss's face as he takes control. Jesse covers Rude's history fighting in clubs and arm wrestling in Minnesota as a fellow Minnesotan. Boss comes back with an absolutely massive back body drop that flings Rude high in the air, then hefts him and carries him around one-handed before a back drop, but gets one. Boss keeps it up, but a big body slam gets one as well. Rude flees outside, and Boss slams him on the floor, then suplexes him back up onto the ropes to hook his legs over for some strikes. Boss climbs back in and slides under the ropes to hit Rude, but the camera guy gets in the way and gets kicked. Great job, as always, WCW camera crew. They're the best. (laughs) I know there's a certain quota for cameramen just, like, either looking at chairs or (laughs) random things. I'd rather see action involved in these hang-ups. Their professionalism is only exceeded by their lack of training. (laughs) There you go. Back in, Boss keeps punching Rude as he tries to pull himself up with Anderson's help, and Anderson warns Boss, but Boss just palm strikes Rude in the face and he falls to the floor. Boss generously helps him back in himself, then kills my goodwill with a bear hug. (laughs) Boss hug? Sure, boss hug. That'll, That'll work. The crowd tells Boss to break his back. Rude bites Boss to break, and counters a charge with a knee to the face, but Boss counters a jumping move with a punch to the face. Boss hits an awkward sort of one-handed bulldog where he doesn't go down, and tries to splash Rude while he's on the ropes, but Rude dodges, and Boss crotches himself. Rude hits a sunset flip for the three count and the win. Thoughts on this one? Is it me, or does the boss look like he's amped up on something? Because, like, even, like, in the intro, like, he's just, like, hopping mad. (laughs) Yeah, he has crazy eyes during that opening shout fest that he has, yeah. Boss is pretty good about that, I think. Once he goes over and becomes big boss man and has more character coming to him, Mm -hmm. he starts getting really, really good at just getting very angry. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. This match had something I've never seen at all in any other wrestling match was the uh, hanging suplex. Yes. Where he just hung him over the the rope. I'm like, well, he could just straighten his legs, but that's okay. You know, like I thought it was inventive <laughs> and unique. And I, I can't believe they went for the, the face punch twice. Why is the ref even helping him up? <laughs> just like, like, setting. that was odd. <laughs> but it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> they make it seem like there's only one way out of this to do a, a crunch. <laughs> yes. <laughs> if anyone could do them, it seems it's clearly Rick Rude. Yeah. Oh, sure. Absolutely. I enjoyed this match quite a bit. I don't know if it's just sheer fear or, you know, whatever, but the boss commands a certain presence in the ring, and mm-hmm. Rick does a good job of acting scared, especially in the beginning when he's trying to psych him out. <laughs> yeah. But it's nice to see Rude come out on top. My thought in this match is there's a lot of punching. Yeah. Like, <laughs> an extreme amount of punching. <laughs> Way too much punching. Like you said, it's a very strong character. Rude does the cowardly heel thing very well. Same way Boss... I keep, I keep saying Boss Man, but... I know. That's part of it. Boss does a really good job of being the sort of crazy, angry guy where... In character, he knows he can beat Rude because he has. Basically, he knows this is my opportunity, I'm going to do this, it's not going to stop me. 
So he's just super confident about it, which is which is good. Mm-hmm. The problem is, yeah, his is not a lot to what he does. Everything he does is okay, other than the spot that we've harped on that just doesn't go right, and it's not his fault. No, but what he does is fine. It's just not a lot of it. And the problem too is that though he's really strong and confident going through the match, but then one move goes wrong, and then he's immediately pinned. Mm-hmm. I kind of expect to finish like this if the move going wrong is supposed to set up a leg issue, and then Rude works the leg for a few minutes, and then counters another move into a pin, mm-hmm. being sure to hold the leg that's damaged so he has no strength to kick out of it. Yeah. Which made perfect sense, but as it is, is, oh, my leg's hurt. Oh, you pinned me. Guess I'm down. Yeah. Hell, even if he'd run and hit, like, you know, that one people do this himself, but he would, like, neck himself in the rope in some way, like a hot shot kind of thing. That's more of a knock-you-out kind of thing. You yeah. get that stumble and get grabbed. I mean, I'm sure hitting your leg or groinal area in general does not feel pleasant, but that's not, like, a big stunning move to me that really mm. seems to make sense. I didn't much like this match the first time I watched it, but then when I went back to watch it for the show notes, I found a lot to like here, actually. There was a lot of character, with Boss looking really intense and dominating while Rude cowered, but Rude also seemed quite canny, and never seemed in quite as much trouble as he looked like. Boss gets the majority of the offense, but he never actually gets more than a one count. So while Rude takes a lot of hits, it still feels like Boss is having trouble actually taking him down. There's some weird but very interesting and unique spots, like the suplex into the rope hang, that kept me wondering where the match would go next. In contrast, Al, I actually feel like Boss, he moves pretty quickly now, but he also, I thought he had some pretty nice move variety over the course of mm-hmm. the match. The weird one-handed bulldog that isn't quite a one-handed bulldog aside. Right. I thought he did a pretty good job varying it up. I feel like this works pretty well to showcase Boss, but maybe less well as an outright match. I would have liked to see this go, say, another five minutes or so. Um, and like you, I thought, use that spot where he misses the move on the ropes as a transition point have Rude take control, then have it get a little more back and forth, and then go for an ending. So it it feels too short and not fully developed, but I still thought the performances were entertaining. It just doesn't quite come together into a fully developed match. I will agree with you. I definitely liked it better the second viewing from Mm -hmm. when I watched the whole show straight through with you. When I went back to just rewatch certain matches to see them again, I definitely liked it better the second time. I'll agree with that. Mm -hmm. It had me until the bear hug. Yeah, that that hurts it. Yeah, but it was nice to see like the law reaccepting Magnum PI as a <laughs> equal investigator. <laughs> but wasn't a bad match. Sadly, this is Rick Rude's last Darkade. <sighs> I know it's not his last match. Don't don't misunderstand. Um, he has several more matches and a few more shows throughout the year. But he has a weird thing where he has an injury at a show in Japan where he's supposed to be defending the WCW International World title against Sting. He takes what looks like a fairly innocuous bump. He's on the outside of the ring. Sting does a dive over the ropes, and he catches Sting pretty well. But there's a weird thing where it's a slightly elevated floor, not a huge difference, but like, I don't know, less than a foot. Sting lands on him, and he hits on that spot, apparently. It's like with Shawn Michaels hitting his back on the uh, yeah. casket. It's just the freak thing hitting that one spot exactly the wrong way. Yeah. And sometimes a really innocuous one that does it, you know? Yeah. The shame is the last time we'll see Rick Rude in the series. Yeah. Can we just do, like, match six twice? (laughs) Just to keep him around a little bit longer. 
<laughs> I, I thought you're just trying to avoid the next match. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Maybe also that. Yeah. I don't want to skip the next match, but go on. Just, you do. Just, yes. Okay. I got it. I just go. <laughs> it's okay. I understand. I understand. Tony and Jesse talk up the upcoming Super Brawl, and we get a very quick video clip announcing that it will feature the Double Thunder Cage live. I I have seen that show, and I cannot remember what that means. <laughs> so it's a cage of the roof. Yeah, but why the? It's a double thunder cage. Well, they have two matches in it. Oh, that's what it was. I forgot if it was that or if it was a cage in a cage in a cage. Mm-hmm. Did you like thunder, thunder, thunder cage? Oh. Sadly, no. It, it could be if it was Ric Flair doing it. Could be a uh, thunder, thunder, thunder cage. Woo! <laughs> there you go. Good adaption. I mean, what were you expecting with double thunder cage? Were you expecting a cage on top of a cage? That's just ridiculous. No one would do that. See, if they electrified one of them positively and the other one negative, and if you actually touched both cages and then it electrocuted you, I mean, like mildly, it would be it'd be worth it. And every now and then, you have arcs of lightning going in between each cage, and that'd be badass. So what you're saying, John, is that you'd really love to see a cage match in which the goal is to electrify your opponent. Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I'd watch it. John just paused for a a sense of foreboding there. (laughs) I mean, it'd all be theater, you know, but... Yeah, yes, yeah. That match exists several times over. Yes. Sweet. (laughs) Tony praises Jesse's suit and says he's a good-looking man. Tony says only one title has changed hands tonight, which isn't a good sign if you're Ric Flair. Our seventh match is Sting and Road Warrior Hawk versus The Nasty Boys, Brian Nobbs and Jerry Sags, with Missy Hyatt for the Nasty Boys WCW World Tag Team Championship. Referee for this match is Nick Patrick. Sting is kind of a weird place, because Sting is outside all the title matches, because they're all kind of set. They have long-term stories with Steamboat, and you have the Austin Rhodes thing. And, of course, the very long-term storyline between Root and the boss. Absolutely. <laughs> all two and a half weeks of it, yeah. But so he's kind of in a weird spot where he can't be fighting for the titles. He's not involved in these stories. So he randomly gets drawn with, I believe it's Knobs in the Battle Bowl show. Of pre- course. Which preceded this, and they don't get along well. But I don't think that's supposed to set up a tag title match. I don't, or if it does, I don't know how. Hmm. The best theory I have is that him and Flair are supposed to be challenging. I still don't know why that would be a story. But obviously, something happened to put Flair where he is now. And thus, Road Warrior Hawk, who has been making sporadic appearances throughout uh, 1993, including at, also at Battle Bowl, um, is sort of his fill-in partner. Which I guess is, speaks highly of Sting, because he's really over the fact that that guy tried to blind Dusty Road, what, three years ago? Four years ago? Yeah. Hmm. Like, we're cool, man. <laughs> I know you tried to gouge his eye out several times, but it's okay. He got better. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And this is, I believe, during the period when Road Warrior Animal is injured. Oh, yeah, I didn't go that. Hawk and Animal leave the WWF in 1992 over a number of issues. They argue with creative, and they don't like their gimmicks they are being used in stories. But Animal does suffer an injury at some point during that year and retires from wrestling for a few years, getting his insurance payout. This is back when insurance companies were foolish enough to insure wrestlers and actually pay out. <laughs> yeah. They learned their lesson after Foley, for sure. Uh. So he stays out for a while. Rover Hawk kind of goes around and does his own thing. 
He forms the Hellraisers with Kazuki Sasaki yeah. and others. So yeah, Hawk is kind of wants to keep wrestling and does keep wrestling, but he half his entity is gone, and plus half his hair is gone. Because <laughs> he has the, if you remember, he has the outside of the Mohawk. Yeah, an animal has the interior. Yeah, yeah. so without, you have the wrong part of it. So he's kind of in a weird spot, just going wherever and fighting whomever. <laughs> I think they teamed him up because they wanted to do a riff on the parable of the frog and the scorpion, but make it more badass, with the hawk and the scorpion team up and just become the, the best murder bird of all time. There you go. I was curious where that was going, but I, you got there, okay. <laughs> I'll be honest with you. <laughs> Confession time. Sting's entrance theme during this period, Man Called Sting, is my favorite WCW entrance theme, and probably in my top five wrestling entrance themes ever, despite being utterly ridiculous. I mean, he does this, he does that. Those are actual lyrics to this song. (laughs) Very descriptive. But oh my gosh, I love that piece. They really need Jimmy Hart to write copycat song for the <laughs> stat. <laughs> oh, it's just it's it's a beautiful song, and he continues to use it for a few years after this, uh, basically up until his transition in late '96. So this is my favorite period for Sting music. <laughs> WCW Slam Jam, I think, or something like that is is the album. I need to look that up because like all these pieces are on it. <laughs> I think I had one of those at Denny's. <laughs> <laughs> As Bob knows, I found the WCW Mayhem CD at a random thrift store, so I'll look around, see if I can find it. Sting comes out in an epic black and silver jacket with black and white face paint several years early, with Hawk in the usual awesome Road Warriors gear, but perfectly content to enter to a song whose lyrics are entirely about his tag team partner. The Nasty Boys manager, Missy Hyatt, carries a whip. Michael Buffer again does the introductions. The Nasty Boys, he says, are from somewhere in or around New York City. Do do they not remember? That's kind of sad. Can't pin that down at all. <laughs> Somebody borrowed a big one. Yeah. 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 They, they moved a lot. <laughs> I guess I sympathize with that. Hyatt shows off the belts, mocking Sting and Hawk, and some jerk in the crowd waves a dollar bill at her. Jeez. Yeah, that's a recurring thing. Yeah. We start with Knobs and Sting as the crowd chants, obviously, for Sting. Sting rewards them with a stinger call. Sting largely dominates to start and hits an amazing high-velocity flying clothesline and his high-jumping elbow drop. They drive the nasties out of the ring, and Hawk picks Sting up overhead and hurls him out onto them. Is, is Hawk reverse DQ'd for throwing his partner over the top rope? Does he have a DQ credit now? It raises many questions. <laughs> cool spot, though. Sags versus Hawk goes Hawk's way, and he beats the heck out of Sags on the ropes and lets him crumple before hitting a beautiful dropkick as he tries to stand. 
Hawk and Sting continue dominating against Sags and Nobs in turn, until Nobs dodges Hawk's tackle in the corner and Hawk hits the post shoulder first. Hawk crumples outside, and Sting comes to help, so Patrick has to escort him back, and that allows double and triple teams. The crowd chants, L-O-D, L-O-D. The Nasties try arm holds, and Nobs hits a slam that Jesse actually notes was not a very good body slam. I agree, but ouch. <laughs> yeah. Nobs appropriates Max Payne's painkiller arm lock, and Hyatt taunts Hawk in a sing-song voice. Hawk escapes the hold with a clothesline with his hurt arm, but Nobs clearly falls early, and Tony and Jesse have to admit that it missed, even though both Hawk and Nobs sell. Sags runs in, and Patrick misses a tag to Sting, but no bother, as Hawk almost immediately actually gets the tag to Sting, and Sting runs wild on the nasties. Sting dodges when Sags tries to break up a pin, and Sags elbow drops Nobs. The nasties try to escape up the ramp with Hyatt, but Sting and Hawk bring them back to the ring. Nobs dodges a splash off the top from Sting. A Nobs sentin' off the second rope goes badly, as Sting rolls to dodge, but Nobs still lands on his elevated shoulder. Ow. Yeah, that does not, definitely not go as supposed to. Yeah. It gets two as Hawk saves, and Patrick escorts Hawk out, but comes back in time to very clearly see Nobs chuck Sting over the top rope. He just kind of has to pretend that he didn't see it, because that's not how the match is supposed to end. <laughs> Jeez. Of all the people, you would think he would be immune to that, but no. Nope, no, yeah, yeah. Which top rope? <laughs> <laughs> one of the top ropes is legal? Is that what you're immune, saying? Yeah, it's fine. It's the same one that, you know... It's, it sounded like you were going to go on there. No, I'm, I'm just sad. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Keep going. Outside, Hyatt whips Sting, and Sags beats him up while Nobs distracts Patrick properly. Back in, Nobs and Sags trade off trying pins and abdominal stretches. Sting fades, but keeps fighting. Sags fails a pump handle slam attempt, but a second try works. The Nasties get several two counts and holds. Capetta announces that five minutes remain. Hawk finally manages to charge in and stop a top rope move by Sags, and gets to his corner for Sting to make the tag. Hawk runs wild on the nasties and mucks up a body slam. It looked like he was going for a power slam, but realized it was going bad and kind of adjusted to a normal slam instead. It's awkward, but at least kind of good instinct there. It was clearly going to hurt if he'd continued the way originally planned. Was it awkward or hawkward? <laughs> mm -hmm. Everyone in and Hawk takes Sags outside as Sting hits a stinger splash on knobs and goes for the scorpion deathlock, but is interrupted by Hyatt. Sting grabs her and kisses her, not cool, and dodges a Nobs charge that hits Hyatt instead. Sting rolls up Nobs and Patrick counts two, even though Hawk, not Sting, is legal. Sting hefts Nobs on his shoulders, and Hawk hits the Doomsday Device clothesline, and Sting tries a pin, but Hyatt runs in and claws at Sting to break it up for the disqualification. Jesse is aghast. Sting, Hawk, and the crowd are dejected. Thoughts on this one? My main note was, why is this match so long? <laughs> question mark, exclamation point, question mark. <laughs> why did he have to kiss her? Yeah, it's a spot from back in th this time that is just, it always gets a reaction and it shouldn't. It's the revenge on the evil woman thing. I guess Understood. they thought it was fine to do in that case, which it isn't. So no. let's be clear on that. This oh. is a spot that shouldn't exist, but 
it does up and down. It, it was accepted because it was done so much, whether they should have been or not. Yeah. yeah. That's the point. Yeah. I just wasn't expecting it from Sting either. Yeah, I know. I think we could all agree we don't like it. Yes. And at the end of the day, you know, they could have handled it better. And like, I think she had like a whip or something or cat of nine tails or yeah. he could have just grabbed that from her and threw it to the ground and then dodged, you know, could have been yeah. like, oh yeah, there's a bunch of disarmed her. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So I'll try and bring in the positives as much as I can. When Sting is on the offense, he looks really good as always. He's still Sting. Remember much match you put him in, he's still Sting. When he gets good moments to do his splash or his calls, or even doing the uh, doomsday device that they managed to do, all that looks good. Problem is, just it's too little in this match. Mm-hmm. My best guess is that they were really heavy on the Nasty Boy for some reason at this point in wrestling. I really thought that that came later with Hogan, but apparently it came before that. People just really liked them. I don't quite get it. Maybe they really did well with the sort of Southern demographic that. WCW tend to aim for more than WWF did. I was even going to have New York and, you know, that Connecticut area. But yeah, so my best guess is that they really convinced that these guys are going to be the tag team of the 90s. So you need two big people like Sting and Hawk to make them look good in the showcase mat for them. The problem is they it's really not a showcase mat for them. No. It's not a good match. So it's a really long match with them on the offense, and it's not that interesting. This match was a team we would see later, like, for example, Harlem Heat, Booger T, and, you know, Stevie Ray. Same structure. I feel like them, mostly Booker over Stevie Ray, obviously, could have made this more interesting mm-hmm. and made that part just not feel so long and dragged out with them on offense and not helped, obviously, by moves not going the way they're supposed to, I hope, unless that was a plan for Sting to roll over and decide for that move. But if so, yeah. why... Harlem Heat's better. In fact, they even know what part of New York they come from. That is true, yeah. <laughs> that's point. That's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> Harlem Heat, Public Enemy, anything that's better than the Nasty Boys, I would have liked it better. I said that just for you, Bob. No, I do like them better than the Nasty Boys, no question. So do I. Yes. In contrast to my being okay with screw finishes with the U.S. title match, two title match, I don't like this non-finish BS. Which, another callback to Starcade, they pull when it was Dusty and Sting against the Road Warriors. Oh, yeah, yeah. Do you think Hawk would have been prepared for that? Because he was the one that did that with his manager. <laughs> True, yeah. But he wasn't, because I guess Hawk just forgot. Yeah. On paper, it sounds good, but in reality, it's not. Yep. This is the first match with Sting and Hawk that I wanted to end earlier. Wow. If that sums it up a little bit. Uh- <laughs> I think so, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Contractually, I think they have to lose at least 60% of their face paint in order to, to finish the match. <laughs> so that's probably why it took so long. I didn't like that Hawk, he is a tag team guy. You know, Sting's, you know, he's in tag teams and he does his own one-on-one thing. But I was hoping Hawk would jump off the sidelines. You know, he just let Sting get beat up for like a third of the match mm-hmm. when he was down. And it just didn't seem right. Could have drove things a little bit faster. It made it feel a little more electric. I should be getting out of the end of this match and not thinking that the Nasty Boys were the more energetic <laughs> yeah. of the four. And that doesn't make any sense to me. The only thing I can say on that point is there's a sort of vague, never really enforced, unofficial rule of wrestling where... You only have one opportunity to break up a pinfall for your team. And then if you do it again, you're supposed to get DQ'd because you're interfering in the match. 
it's a nebulous rule that is never enforced, but that might be the mindset they're going for. But yeah, I can agree. But I agree with you. It just it feels like Hawk is noticeably less active outside the ring than in many other tag matches. For sure, yeah. You know, the only reason why I'm really focusing on that is because I want to see more of Hawk. You know, I want to see mm-hmm. more interaction between these two people that I really do care about (laughs) as far as, you know, like they are superstars and they're not given that role, Mm -hmm. even as someone to overcome. They were just accessories to Nasty Boys and that's never good. No. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to say it's as bad a match as I'm making it sound. It's just, it it just rubbed me the wrong way. Oh yeah. I I get that. Definitely. Sure. It had the potential to be my match of the night because it had Sting and Hawk and it just wasn't a match. I'm going to associate with him in the future, <laughs> if I can help it. Yeah. This one, it kind of started and stopped. They had some good bursts of fast action, but some really long holds at times, and a mix of interesting and dynamic spots with some really basic brawling or some repetitive moves. I think, like you guys, it is way longer than it needs to be. But one thing it never loses is crowd reaction. Apparently so, yeah. Yeah. They love Hawk. They love Sting. They really hate the Nasty Boys. So just about everything gets huge reactions here, whether it's justified or not. Which did make it a little easier to get into this at times, despite misgivings on my part. It just feels like a lot goes wrong in this match, though. Mm-hmm. There's loads of mistimed spots, some severely so. A few points where people just don't seem to get their grip right or have enough left to make a move work. I'm pretty sure that Sags legitimately hurts his leg or hip at some point as he's just not moving right by the end of the match and looked legitimately uncomfortable, not just selling. He's very clearly like limping around the ring towards the end of it. If it was Nobbs, I could see that from that. Right, yeah. Nobbs is the one that has the sentence that goes bad, but Sags is the one that... So I couldn't identify where that happened, but it's very clear towards the end of it. He looks very uncomfortable. The whole match just feels confused at points, chaotic in a really bad way, not a good way. It feels like the participants themselves lose track of what's going on at times or where they are in the match. So while there's a few good spots in this match, I ended up really disliking it, taken as a whole. Overall, not a good match, especially considering that Sting and Hawk are involved. I can't just blame the Nasty Boys for this. I think everyone was doing their part, but everyone seemed a little off too. They just didn't mesh. And it ended up a really awkward match. Yeah, very disappointing. The other thing, going back to everything that's being tense, Starcade, you watch this in contrast to a match that gets the heels in control, face in peril thing super well, which is, of course is the Andersons and Rock and Roll Express. Oh my gosh, yes. You see 100%, this is how it's supposed to look, knowing what it should be, and you see this, you're like, oh, that's not, that's not what this is. Yeah. So like I said, my best guess is they, they were told... You got to do a long match to show off what Nasty Boys can do, show them dominate you, but that was a bad call if that was what mm-hmm. it was. Very bad call. <laughs> Flair was still on his way. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> so, I didn't mention anything about Kagshak and Max Payne earlier because they were going to be the next challenger for the Nasty Boys uh, okay. in the upcoming shows. Oh. Yeah, and then, ha- yeah. Oh, that Bob's one. reaction face says you know, he remembers the match of talking about. They have one match that goes pretty badly. So the, the match in this show was to build up them as challengers to the titles. Well, Warrior Hawk would just kind of just stop showing up. He wrestled in Japan a lot. Mostly he's a big New Japan, All Japan guy with Suzaki and others. We will see him in WCW again. It's just 
there's no follow-up to this where he's like hanging around with Sting. It's just, hey, as you for the mat, bye. I'm gone. Sting would move up from this match to be challenging for the WCW International World Heavyweight title. And then the uh, more uncomfortable part, explaining how Missy Hyatt. What you didn't see, because you're watching the WWE Network version, is that when she ran in and attacked Sting, her outfit, which you'd note, was very form-fitting, I would say, and very little to it. There was a slight, I believe the term is wardrobe malfunction. Oh, crap. That happened... So if you watched a non-edit for the network version, you would see it. Not that there's really much to see, and I'm not telling you to look for that. I'm just saying it does exist. That's part of why we see when she's she attacks and then quickly rolls out of the ring, because she's trying to cover herself up. Oh, okay. According to Missy Hyatt, when she came in to work at the CNN Towers for TV tapings and other things, she found a picture, blown a picture from that moment on the wall. Oh, my god! Along with other... Thing they're supposed to be there, like Michael Jordan slamming a basket and that kind of stuff. She goes to Eric Bischoff, and he says, oh, yeah, I'll deal with that. And the way she describes it is a not-so-helpful manner. And enough time goes by that she sees no repercussion for this, that she complains to Eric Bischoff's boss. Basically, she feels he's not doing anything. Well, I'll talk to his boss. He'll someone to do something about this. You know, no one's fired, no one's defined or anything. Uh, the response to that is Eric Bischoff fires her. He claims it's something else entirely, and he still to this day claims that. I'm trying to be even-handed here. Mm-hmm. But basically, yeah, she complains about it and gets fired. He claims it's another reason you got fired, but this is her last appearance in WCW. Okay. So yeah, that was fun to research and explain. Yeah. Jeez. Dark stuff that happens backstage. Apparently so. Yeah. All right. We go back to Gene, and he congratulates Jesse on his suit, then seems to sneeze or spit or something and excuses himself. I'm not sure if that was a joke somehow, or if he just actually had a tickle in his throat or something there. It was a weird bit. Gene says he's been thrilled to get to be a part of Starcade for the first time. So it's time for our final match. Ric Flair versus Vader with Harley Race title versus career, with Vader's WCW World Heavyweight Championship and Flair's career on the line. The referee for this match is Randy Anderson. The long-term build-up of this match was not Ric Flair coming to unseat Vader, who has been holding fairly strongly on the title basically since I told you he won it two days after the last arcade. The actual build-up they've been going for involved Sid Vicious, who had been in the company through 93, uh, left for a very short period of time, as he wanted to do, came back, he loses a sting at a show in October, and then comes a good guy, and immediately start challenges Vader for the title. So that's where this was going up until mid-October. That was the plan going into this. However, a famous incident happens in October, which completely changes this show. Mm-hmm. On October 27th, a fight broke out during the European tour a couple days after Halloween Havoc between Arn Anderson and Sid Vicious. Somehow, they both ended up with safety scissors, the rounded scissors used with children. Sid ended up being stabbed four times, while Arn was stabbed 20 times, according to reports. Jeez. Follow up to that, many wrestlers, as you would imagine, did not feel comfortable with Sid around after that attack and basically threatened to quit if he wasn't fired, 
And so he was. Yeah. So that's late October. They're going towards Starcade and they had things to do. So they quickly pivoted like they did on several occasions from this show, it seems, and had Flair decide to put his career on the line to challenge Vader. So that's how we got weird today. Scissors and last minute booking. Jeez. Thankfully, uh, a situation where everybody came out of that alive. Absolutely, yeah. Then Arn obviously goes on to have considerably more of a career as well, too, So and so does Sid. But mm-hmm. that's an, such an amazing and strange and horrible story that... Uh, it's not clear whether they're even fighting over, honestly. I don't recall exactly where I heard this, so it may be wrong, uh, but I believe that it's a dispute over Sid feels like Arn and Flair have been around for too long, and especially Flair, and they need to step aside and let you know a new batch come in and take charge. And Arn, having taken a pay cut earlier in the year during the Watts reign, being upset over the fact that Sid is making quite a bit more money than him, so they almost get in a fight downstairs in a bar. Then they go to their rooms, and eventually it comes back to blows again, and scissors, apparently. You kind of forget anything about what it's about or anything like that when it goes into stabbed each other with safety scissors. It's like, it's not funny, but it's funny. It's it's yeah, yeah, It's yeah. a dark kind of, you can't help but laugh at... The fact that they have this, that as a weapon? It's not like they tackled them through a window in a preschool and then they grabbed the nearest thing. Yeah, I, I, like I said, I don't know why they both had them. Or if they had one I, pair. I, in the I think it's one them. pair going back and forth is how I've heard it. But okay. yeah, I don't, it's just, wow. Yeah. So, feels weird to word it this way, but on the bright side, I guess, we do end up with a pretty epic. Uh, storyline here on short notice. They did a good job of planning around the weird sudden need to change angles. Mm-hmm. In this case, you get a, a, a pretty epic feud out of it here. Tony predicts the place is going to explode for this last match. That's a, more of a threat than a prediction. <laughs> Vader gets monster booze as he comes out, highlighted by Red Pyro. Some fans in the crowd throw up Vader signs, so he does have some supporters. Vader tells Jesse, get comfortable, he's gonna hurt Flair slowly. Flair's music hits, and the crowd erupts in cheers. Tony's prediction was entirely accurate. We get lots of signs for Flair in the crowd. He's got a purple and silver robe tonight that is just super glittery, even more than usual for Flair. Like, the entire thing is luminous. <laughs> he figures this, this is his last match, he's always glitter he had left. Yeah. Michael Buffer does the introductions. He almost puts an R at the front of Vader's name, so maybe he's slightly confused by the fact that he's introducing a second, similarly named, world title match tonight. Jesse says Flair's 1975 plane crash may have been easy compared to facing Vader. Maybe a bit too far with that, Jesse? Yeah, I'm pretty sure someone died in that. So maybe, yeah. Yeah. The crowd chants loudly for Flair. Vader overpowers Flair. So Flair tries making Vader chase him outside to tire him out, but Vader wises up fast. Flair comes for him, and Vader grabs Flair's hand and crushes it in his grip, eliciting screams from Flair. 
Vader and Race taunt Flair as Vader torments him, beating him down in the corners with hard forearm shots and dumping him on the barricade outside. Vader asks the crowd, who's the man? And he answers for them, it isn't Flair. Vader tries a splash, and Flair dodges, so Vader eats barricade. The crowd erupts as Flair fires back with punches and shoves Vader into the ring post, but Harley Race cheap shots Flair while ref Randy Anderson isn't looking. Back in, Vader takes back control, and Flair tries to defend himself as best he can, but Vader lands heavy blows and a giant slam for two and three quarters. After a massive clothesline, Flair crawls to the corner, and Vader looks to the crowd, but some brave souls tell him, Flair is the man. I hope Vader didn't catch their faces. Flair dodges a second rope splash and actually miraculously hits three consecutive top rope axe handles to knock Vader down. Although, to be fair, the second one only barely hit. But still, three top rope moves in a row. Karma owed Flair, I guess. Evidently, <laughs> yeah. Race distracts Flair, and Vader cuts off the comeback with a clothesline that gets Flair bleeding from the mouth. Vader hits a superplex and asks the crowd, Who's the man? Flair, they shout. I'm loving this interaction. <laughs> Vader destroys Flair, and Race cannot contain his glee, even joining in outside when Anderson isn't looking. Tony says Race never forgave Flair for beating him back at Starcade 83. Vader shrugs off Flair's comebacks and just gets angrier. Race yells at Flair to quit, and Vader crushes his hand again, but Flair punches free and keeps punching until Vader falls to his knees and down. Perfect Rocky moment there, and huge cheers. Vader's mask comes off. Flair drags Vader to the apron and Race protests and tries to approach, so Anderson goes over to hold Race back, and Flair smashes Vader's leg into the post and hits it with a chair, then hits Vader over the head with another chair. The fans taunt Vader, and I fear for the fans' safety. Tony says Flair is taking big chances. A DQ or a countout ends his career here. But Jesse says he has to do it. There's no other way against Vader. Flair, exhausted, builds to the figure four, as Tony says that he's seen Flair go for 60 minutes regularly, but 20 minutes with Vader is equivalent to that. Vader kicks Flair away on the first attempt at the figure four, but Flair dodges a splash and expertly whips Vader's legs out from under him to lock in the hold. Race tries to interfere, and Anderson catches him, but Vader makes the ropes. Vader knocks Flair down and tries an incredible moonsault off the top rope. It is insane that Vader can do that. It's amazing. <laughs> but Flair dodges. Flair covers, and Race tries a headbutt off the top rope. But Flair rolls away, and Race nails Vader. Anderson had just looked away. Anderson spots Race in the ring, and as Race stands, he shoves Race through the ropes to the ramp. The crowd <laughs> loves to see that happen. Flair charges Vader with a jumping forearm and rapid chops, but Vader body checks him down on the second attempt. But Vader stumbles on his injured leg and turns to walk it off. But Flair springs to his knees, hefts Vader's leg on his shoulders, and levers him over into a pin for the three count and the win. The crowd erupts once again in cheers and applause as fireworks go off and confetti rains down, and an exhausted Flair walks around the ring with his title, happy but completely spent, in a scene reminiscent of Starcade 83. Walking down the ramp, Flair bows to the crowd and shows his thanks for their support, and seems to either check his teeth or check if he's gotten some of the confetti in his mouth. <laughs> Thoughts on this one? Obviously, as you mentioned, it's a really great story. 
Flair, despite being champion in every Starcade that he's been at at this point, or challenging for the championships the one time, eighty-seven, I think it is. Mm-hmm. He somehow managed to do a sort of underdog story, which is impressive, all things considered. It's definitely a great interaction between the two of them. Vader is 100% on as the massive cocky heel mm-hmm. who has gotten away with everything he's tried to do. So why wouldn't he be cocky? Yeah. Why wouldn't he have been successful? Flair managed to go from being the arrogant dickhead he's been at so many shows, whether he's fighting Rhodes or Garvin or anybody like that, to suddenly fighting from underneath and being sympathetic as he tries to fight his way out of this situation that he's gotten himself into and trying to survive. One thing I really like about the match is they definitely have a couple false finishes that I was impressed by. You could have easily had Vader miss the moonsault and you pin him off that, which I mm-hmm. believe has been a finish on some shows before. That's how you get around that he knocks himself out, but he kicks out of that one. Likewise, you could have had him damaged and, and stayed on the figure four, whether it's for the whether he just lays down and doesn't put his shoulders up, like happens to a bunch of people, or whether he actually gives up. But again, don't don't do that. They go past both those two more obvious points, build up another flurry, then stop that, and then have Flair use one moment of weakness to his advantage and win the match. Mm-hmm. It's a really interesting build-up, too, because Flair is doing chops and punches to no effect. Vader's just standing there taking them early on and shoving them around the ring. And the more he wears them down, the, the more effect it has. It really is, like they say, it's like chopping down a redwood, mm-hmm. the question they go for all the time. It's definitely impressive for both people. Vader managed to be undeniably unstoppable at the beginning of the match, show moments of weakness that can be exploited, and then, again, one moment trying to recover himself, and that's his downfall. Mm-hmm. Likewise, Flair goes in where he should be strong, fights his way all the way up from the bottom, little by little, piece by piece. And managed to win. It's a great mm-hmm. story. Leading into this, you know, I didn't know about Vincent or any of that stuff. For them to be able to pull something together like this, uh, I thought it was just a straight-up gimmick. But, you know, I think they chose a good theme for this match, and then they carried it through. They wove a nice tapestry, like you said earlier, Bob, that there was some rocky moments, and there mm-hmm. was, and there was definitely... A, sort of like David and Goliath, which is weird to, to apply to like someone like Flair. <laughs> yeah. I think the the narrative, or at least the amount of time that they spent building up the match kind of made it believable. Mm-hmm. Like there really was a imminent chance that, you know, he could lose his career after this, even though you do think he might come back, in the, you know, if he lost. Oh, yeah, wrestling retirements are never permanent, but yeah. Flair especially. <laughs> Yes. He might have taken a small hiatus or something, you know, and then came back. Either way is plausible, or they could have just had a tie at the end. But Vader did a great job, and, and Flair did a great job of this gradual role reversal of aggressor, and mm-hmm. each were a juggernaut at one point in the in the match. It's weird to attribute strength to Flair. Uh, he's more of the trickster god of, mm-hmm. of the ring. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, oh, wow, you know, Loki's actually like Thor's brother. Okay, so <laughs> so he's like hammering blows into, into Vader. And, and, you know, there's some weird Viking Edda somewhere here in this, but <laughs> it's weird to see Flair unhinged in this manner, but also driven. Mm-hmm. So it, it's a nice change. And it 
for me shows a little bit more depth of character you know a little more maturity than i would have expected and i'm glad the storyline happened Mm -hmm. because i might not have seen that sort of uh development out of him and uh, they chose a good and worthy opponent to build him up it was a thoroughly enjoyable match and one of those things, yes, it was it was long, but it's one of those things like I'm glad it was. Mm-hmm. I didn't feel like in some of the other matches that are too short or too long or anything like that, but the crowd is clearly on Flair's side, and he rises to meet it. Yeah, it's, it's neat, isn't it? That you get to see a different side of Ric Flair here. This is a Flair that, if we've ever seen this Flair, it was back at 83. Yeah. And that Flair was much more of the normal challenger for a title. Where this is the, I think you you said he was he was driven. He's the man who realizes this could be it. This could be everything. This could be not just the title, but his career. And I mean, heck, it's Vader, maybe even his life. For making Rocky references, <laughs> you know, as Flair, uh, Rocky or Apollo Creed against uh, I've forgotten Ivan Drago. against Ivan Drago. It's a fascinating match to watch for the subtleties. I think. Yeah, excellent match with a really, really good storyline. Flair tries to outsmart Vader at first. He tries to outrun him in a similar way to what Sting was doing the previous year to tire him out. But Vader recognizes that and doesn't fall for it. So Flair has to fight more openly, and he takes a savage beating. But Flair, he's fighting for more than just the title here, so he will not quit. And you actually feel the like additional strength that his goal gives him here. There's so much emotion in this one. I felt Flair's desperation and that no matter his own pain, he was always watching and would pounce the moment that he could, knowing that was all he could do. He could look for one opening and take it. So he took advantage of mistakes and damaged Vader in the moment, but then Vader would always shrug it off. It was only the injury to his knee and Flair's figure four that finally set up a weakness that lingered and that Flair managed to use to win the match. I absolutely loved the call-outs to the history between race and Flair. It's a great storyline for the 10th anniversary show. It feels like it completes a tale that began at Starcade 83. The disgraced former champion, unable to get rid of his rival himself, brings in the most powerful weapon he can to try to eliminate his old foe for good. Race was active in this match. Mm-hmm. He always seemed to be looking for a way to strike or interfere, and when he couldn't, he tried to sap Flair's morale. Anytime you see him, he's near Flair and making a fist, like, I'm ge- if the moment the ref looks away, I'm going to pop mm-hmm. you one. It's, it's great. And then there's the crowd interaction. It was unbelievable. They were 100% not just invested in the story, but part of it. Vader did a particularly great job with that just constantly challenging them to change their opinion of Flair, and angry that they kept refusing to acknowledge he was better than Flair. It added a whole new depth to the match. There are one or two moments that don't go quite perfectly, or strange little bits to the story. Anderson not really seeming to question why a dazed Harley race was suddenly in the ring after the headbutt spot was one, but those are nitpicks. By and large, this was a truly great match, with an excellent emotional story and a terrific ending that perfectly balanced Vader's toughness and the figure four's importance. Vader can't give up to the hold. That would really hurt his character, I think. But the hold aggravates his injury, 
and his reaction to that injury gives Flair the opening that he needs to win. Excellent story. Excellent match. When Flair uses the chair, the first time, it's definitely... Race is already there to strike the referee. They're going to use the knee, I believe. First yeah. time he meets him. Or a second time, Flair is still in the chair. He's about to hit him in the head, and Race had to quickly grab the ref. Yes. So I think Flair is just take two in the moment. Yeah. Like, I'll hit him again. The ref's like, um, oh, oh, hey, we do it here. <laughs> Race was very on the ball there, realizing, oh, crap, I've got to gotta make sure I'm still distracting him. <laughs> yeah. You might even think there's a great moment from WrestleMania 2 where Togan and King Kong Bundy. And Bundy is on a blade, because in the 80s, you're on a blade for everything. And the camera is just looking at him, because he didn't find like, a good corner to do it at. So his manner in the outside is Bobby Heenan. Heenan quickly like starts yelling at the camera guy and starts cutting a promo. So <laughs> he'll turn and look away. Nice. I'm like, that is what managers do. And that's the other race thing. Yes. That said, in kayfabe, Harley Race is a terrible manager, because he oh, keeps yeah. distracting the referee. He sees Flair with the chair and then distracts the referee for no reason. What I liked about that spot overall, though I agree on the last moment there, <laughs> what I liked about that spot overall, though, is like, so Anderson has seen Race coming at Flair and kind of, at the very least, getting his face. He never sees him actually strike him, but yeah. he gets the feeling Race keeps trying something. Yeah. So it actually makes total sense that when Race starts protesting about the chair initially, Anderson's like, no, go back, get away, mm-hmm. because he's seen Race is not trustworthy. Race's reputation and, the, and his actions through the rest of the match come back to bite him. That the one time he's got a legitimate thing that he could be getting the ref on his side mm-hmm. about, the ref won't believe him because why would you believe Harley Race? <laughs> so I, I like yeah. that bit. But yeah, that, that last one is like, okay, yeah, in storyline, he shouldn't have done that. But in match choreography, he absolutely had to do that. It's just flirting to in the moment and Race being on his feet covering it, but it makes no sense in the story. Yeah. I'm still just picturing the moonsault. Was that amazing? Were you expecting that at all? Honestly, when he was bouncing on the ropes earlier in the match to just basically f- do a belly flop on him, I don't know the, mm-hmm. what the term is, but I, I was expecting something like maybe not maybe not a moonsault, but like maybe like twisting in midair and just doing like a belly to belly kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I know Vader is strong enough to do whatever. Yeah, it just looked really good. He doesn't just do a backflip, barely managing to do it or anything. It's beautiful. Oh, yeah. It's like, maybe not quite Tamuda-level beautiful moonsault, but it's a beautiful moonsault. He's very, very good at doing that. The dude's like, what, 400, 450, something like that, that, pounds? It's How is it possible that he can do that? But he can. 300 of it is muscle. (laughs) Yeah, it's crazy that he's capable of that. Well, it's one of the things where, because he's of his mystique, his uh, actual ability, his stamina, and his strength, he doesn't even need to do that. No, but if he had never, like, if it's Vader like had icing never on tried, the cake. yeah, exactly. If Vader had never tried to learn moonsault, it would have been like, oh, Vader was pretty good, but he's missing that one thing. It's already an amazing performance. He doesn't need to do this, but he does because he, like the best wrestlers, always wants to improve and always wants to have something to to amaze people with. So, yeah, it's that's that's crazy that he's capable of that. Especially that late in the match, too. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. It's not when he's, like, rested and everything, either. Yeah. They've been going for, I think it is, legitimately 20 minutes at that point. Yeah. 
I mean, Vader has incredible stamina for a big man, but he's he is a very big guy, and that's just you know natural that eventually you get tired out. But yeah, he pulls that off with like no sign of any concern that he might not do it. Yeah, it's just great. <laughs> Flair proved to be a strong champion yet again. And Toyd faced a red and yellow roadblock in 1994. <laughs> As for Vader, his feud would transition away from Flair into being against the boss, or whatever he'd be called at any point during 1994. <laughs> They're nailing that house gimmick. Tony praises Flair's guts and determination, and says that his career will still go on. Jesse says he didn't think Flair could do it, but he was wrong. Flair managed to best Vader with a simple cradle move. The crowd stays, still wildly cheering for Flair even after he's gone backstage. Tony throws to Eric Bischoff, who has the worst job imaginable, Mm -hmm. interviewing Vader after his loss. Eric tries to go for an interview, but Vader goes nuts and starts hurling chairs and punching oddly plastic-wrapped lockers, <laughs> screaming that he wants the title back. So Eric runs the hell away. <laughs> Smart man, Eric Bischoff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Flair comes back out on the entrance ramp as the crowd still keeps cheering. What a crowd reaction here. Flair once again gestures his thanks and appreciation for the crowd, and finally goes back to a different homicidal Vader-free locker room, joining Gene Okerlund and the Flair family. Okerlund points out Flair's bloodied mouth, but says Flair took it to Vader, and Flair quietly says, no, Vader took it to him. Vader is a great wrestler and was a great champion. Flair is overwhelmed by the support. He's so glad to have his family here with him, it's such a big day for him. Flair, in tears, walks off camera. Reed joins him. As Jean talks to Beth Flair, she's happy for Flair and glad that this happened in Charlotte. Flair hugs Reed as Jean brings in Sting. Jean builds up this being Flair's record 11th world title and says that Sting knows how hard it is to get that title. Sting congratulates Flair and says they've had their battles, but he said before and says it now, Flair is the greatest world champion of all time. Sting says even he was almost betting against Flair, but Flair did it. Gene brings in casually dressed Ricky Steamboat, and Steamboat says, History has been made. Steamboat is honored to stand in Flair's presence and shakes his hand. Gene says they're almost out of time and asks Flair for his final thoughts. Flair, truly grateful, says that he is a very, very fortunate man. Gene says that they're fortunate to have Flair grace them with his presence and thanks him. Gene closes out the show for the team and Starcade 93 is done. They seem to have trouble with the microphones here, as only Gene is particularly audible. But for all that, for me, what a great ending this was. Mm-hmm. It's like the Starcade 83 one, but done much more smoothly and in much shorter time frame. Mm-hmm, yeah. A tremendously grateful, honestly emotional flair can barely speak genuinely touched by the support he's received and by being able to win the title in front of his family. Bringing in Flair's biggest rivals, Sting and Steamboat, to congratulate him was a masterstroke. And Flair, who always seems to do this, does an excellent job of building up Vader as well, specifically calling him out as a great champion. 
Blair never seems to miss an opportunity to build up an opponent, and helps make sure that Vader lost absolutely none of his reputation, even after losing the match. So audio troubles aside, this was exactly the ending the show needed. Also, Vader is a terrifying dude. <laughs> absolutely. Without a doubt. Yeah. They did a really good job with that. I feel for Flair, because he, he clearly had some sort of cut inside his mouth when mm-hmm. that happened. So he's trying to do a promo, but he's got blood in there, and we'll be, he really takes a drink of water to like get rid of some yeah. stuff. Yeah. So he powers through that, I'm sure, was a fun situation to be in. Battered and bruised, and then yeah, trying to talk with blood in your mouth. But yeah, no, it's a really strong segment. I thought the blood was actually look towards the end of the match. It looks like he bit Vader's face or something. <laughs> <laughs> he does bite him at one point, I think, actually, doesn't he? I believe yeah, he does. But I think his mouth is bleeding from a Vader clothesline. Like you, you said, I do wonder why those lockers in the back, you <laughs> locker room are like cellophane wrapped. My thought was maybe someone mentioned to the arena, okay, we're going to have Vader go a little bit nuts back here and throw things around. And they were like, okay, let's wrap the, ro- the lockers to protect them from debris or something like that. But no one told anyone that Vader will then proceed to grab lockers and punch them <laughs> multiple times. Yeah. Or that, you know, like people are going to have blood and they want to be able to clean up that quickly yeah, too. It, it is just funny. A artificial barrier between personal items and <laughs> yeah. the people that are just using the arena. <laughs> yeah. I can't imagine the arena was particularly pleased to see Vader going to town on their lockers and equipment, but you know, <laughs> it's, it makes for a great moment in the show anyway. Mm-hmm. And yeah, Flair is just, he seems absolutely genuine here. And it's its pretty amazing to watch. Yeah. Okay, Starcade 93 is done. So, thoughts on the show, guys? It's an interesting show because there's eight matches. I think three of them are really, really strong. Mm-hmm. And it's not to say the rest of them are really bad, but I mean, the first match is okay. Second match is don't even talk about the steamboat. Regal match is really good. There's ups and downs. And on the plus side, I don't think it's planned this way. I'm sure you hope all of matches are equally good. It It's good, at least, that it's, you know, match three and match, like, six and match eight. So it's sort of based throughout the show. Yeah. So it's not like some of the shows you watch where it's, like, five matches that are okay to bad, and then suddenly one really good one. Yeah. It's at least a pretty well-balanced show. It doesn't quite feel as long as some of the ones... Maybe because there is more variety. There's, you know, tag match, singles match. There's not like four tag matches in a row. Yeah. Or, or six or seven tag matches in a row. <sighs> or ten tag matches in a row. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Correct. So it's overall a well, more well-balanced show. And they pick a story to build up, which is Vader Flair. And stick with that throughout the rest of the show. So the climax feels like it is the big payoff to all mm-hmm. that. Without knowing stuff we know, like Sid being fired and being replaced, you wouldn't be able to tell that, I think. No. They do a job in a really quick amount of time setting up Flair and his story, and they commit to it, they commit to it so strongly that it, it works. There's definitely good and bad parts of the show. I think you can watch all the way straight through. I think it generally holds up. There's definitely a bit of a lull when you get to the, the second to last match because it goes too long. So I think you could watch it straight through, but if you watch what I think are the stronger matches separately, you get more out of them. Or if you split it in two viewings, you might get more each time. Mm-hmm. Um, I like the Starcade. Actually, you know, like I feel 
I know I was maybe a little more critical of, of Flair's acting or, you know, presence in the beginning of the show without looking at everything as a whole. But I think it has a great narrative. Definitely one of the shows that I feel like is complete, where a lot mm-hmm. of other shows, you don't get that sense. And even though we have camera issues and everything else, it, I think it overall has some sort of polish. <laughs> I don't yeah. know how to mm-hmm. describe that. It's it, it's there. There's a sheen. Like Al said, there were some ups, some downs. But I, I think that the match length aside... And let's just ignore the second match, even though it was fun for while it lasted. <laughs> everything had the potential to be great for the length that was, you know, with the exception of seven. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't want to talk bad about it, but like, you know, it had potential. And I'm sure for a lot of fans, people need to root for the bad guy too, or be up against the heel. It's just as enjoyable to boo someone as it is to cheer them on And sometimes. Mm-hmm. So there's a little catharsis between six and eight, and I'm okay with that. But it was a good finish. I'm glad that they took the time, whereas people are not being cut off mid-sentence. They <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. paid the extra couple bucks to get the extra stuff in there. Obviously, it makes it look like they are really genuinely extending it farther than they normally would, given the state of the lockers and and plastic wrap and everything it doesn't seem polished at the end but i think it's just more like a bonus feature yeah that they decided to keep along because the crowd was charged and you know i think they needed to give them some sort of closing as well (laughs) yeah this is the first show that i can this is maybe the only show i can ever remember in wrestling where you got basically the not like an encore as in another match, but like Flair coming back out after he'd gone backstage already, him recognizing, no, they want to see me one more time, and him coming back out to take that last bow and send the crowd off just fully happy, I think was was such an amazing thing to see. I've never seen that that I can recall on a wrestling show. It's fascinating to see that. This was quite a variable show, quality-wise. There's one match that shouldn't have even been on the card, and there's some uneven performances from some people who are really normally pretty reliable performers. But for every low point, there were some absolutely massive high points, not least of which was the show Long Flare storyline. Looking back at it in 2019, I felt like maybe we spent a little too much time on that limo ride, like it slowed the pace down a bit. But looking at that crowd in that final match... I think in the moment, in 1993, every single glimpse of Flair leading up to that match would have only enhanced the show. That storyline had them captured. WCW gambled heavily on focusing hard on Flair here, and it paid off. Flair has now been on nine Starcades, and every time he's there, he's in the main event. That's because it works. Despite his two-year absence from the company, Flair is still Mr. Starcade. The downside, again from 2019 eyes, of such a heavy focus is that it honestly overwhelms much of the rest of the show. There are some pretty good matches in there other than Flair vs. Vader, but by the end of the show, they've faded somewhat to the background. This isn't a one-match show, but thinking back on it afterwards, it somewhat felt like it. 
I had to focus to even recall the other matches I liked, the other emotional moments on the night. The Flair vs. Vader story is so overpowering that it changes the feel of the entire show. I'm not sure that I would call this show an easy watch, strictly. There are some matches that slow it down, and I did find myself losing interest at points as a result. At least there were only eight matches this time, thank you for that, WCW. But there really isn't much in the way of storyline content outside the flare angle tonight. Some of the other matches really could have used a minute or two of promo time to give them a bit more connection. In particular, it seems like Rude and Bossman or Rhodes and Austin had quite a bit of emotion in their matches, but they're just missing that last little bit of build to call to the viewer to fully connect. A little bit of promo time could have helped with that, or a video package or something like that. Also, more regal faces, please. (laughs) (laughs) Tony and Jesse on commentary were variable as well. Jesse is a good commentator when he stays focused on the matches and storylines, but he lets himself get distracted sometimes, and his sense of humor is, at times, a tad awkward, shall we say? Sure. When they were both on track, they made some terrific points and did a great job bringing in both current and former storylines to build up matches. It just felt like they got derailed at times. Production was again kind of rough. WCW's camera crew just doesn't quite seem to get where to be, sometimes with painful results. <laughs> Some important moments again were completely or mostly missed by the camera. Audio difficulties reared their ugly head again. It just seems to be something WCW can never quite master. One compliment They really act fast when the lights go out during the Rhodes vs. Austin match and get the spotlights on the ring pronto. Oh, and one other. This is another show where we got time-remaining announcements whether or not the match was going to a time-limit draw. I always like it when they do that. That's true, yeah. This is the 10th anniversary show, but aside from the Flair story, it's again one of those ones that, from a flashing gravitas standpoint, feels kind of small or normal. The set design's very basic, just curtains and lights. There's just nothing particularly special about the show itself. It has an epic storyline in Flair vs. Vader, but the show's overall feel is very average. Not at all what I was expecting for the 10th anniversary. Still, there's a lot of good to be found here. I just think, ultimately, it's a show where I would probably recommend you just watch a few of the matches, then maybe catch some of the Flair angle stuff on the way to watching Flair vs. Vader. There are chunks of the show that are entirely skippable, and some that I would definitely recommend avoiding entirely. So, ultimately, a good show, but very uneven. Alright, match of the night and MVP. Al, you want to go first? Okay, so, match of the night comes down to, as I sort of mentioned before, three matches. That would be Steamboat Regal for the TV title, Rhodes Austin for the US title, and Flair Vader for the world title. That's really hard to pick between if I don't really sort of nitpick and get into the fire details. Mm-hmm. So for me, the U.S. title match with Austin Road falls apart a little bit because of technical difficulties, and I feel like both finishes aren't as strong as they could be. It's like the pinfall is not as great, and just distraction with their part. So that's out. As good as it is, it's out for me for match the night. Flair Vader has some awkward stuff with the ref and Flair using the chair, and I understand the storyline of the just grab his leg and pin him like that. But I was kind of hoping for a stronger finish with that. Mm. So taking them the way again, not taking away from the match, but I thought it's just a little point for me. So for me, the strongest match overall in simplest story is actually Steve Regal. Okay. 
I understand your point of saying that the flare Vader Stormlight is so strong it overtakes everything. That actually is a point for me in favor of Regal and Steamboat because I feel like their match actually held up for me. Okay. It's a very simple story, but they kept to it and built it nicely through. Looking back at that sticks to me as I can't really pick that apart. I, yeah, I know I should be should just pick Flair and Vader because of how strong emotionally it is, but for me, I think Flair and Vader is really emotionally strong, but it gets all of that attention and, and care and passion built into it. Whereas Steamboat and Regal have, here's 15 minutes, do your match, and they made the most of that. So they okay. stood out for me in that regard. That said, it's even harder to pick MVP. <laughs> Again, you pick one person from any situation, practically, or any match, even. I think ultimately it comes down to Flair or Vader for me, for overall performance. I lean toward Vader, but ultimately I think I have to go with Flair because Flair filled in the uh, character gap, as you mentioned. He's been the sort of straightforward face trying to win the title, and he's been the cocky heel defending the title, whether it's as a technical wrestler or a like a super strong Marvel like with Nikita Koloff. What's interesting about this match to me, and why he, his point stands out, is that this is a sort of weird invert of the Nikita Koloff match he had from, I think, 86, where he is underdog, but it's inverted. The whole character starts inverted. The strong guy is not overcoming overcoming the cocky heel. Flair is now suddenly coming up behind. So it's a similar match, but different enough. I was worried he couldn't pull it off, like where he can be sympathetic. But he totally did it. So, mm-hmm. so by doing something he hadn't done before, after Helling, as you said, so many shows, doing it differently, I think, gives national knowledge to me. Yeah. All right. John, match of the night and MVP. Well, I have a trio to choose from. <laughs> I'm going to give the match of the night to uh, Vader and Flair. The storyline kind of, I bought into it, you know, even though it was cheesy mm-hmm. and everything in the beginning, but, you know, it, it felt more real during as the match went on. And I think that after the match bonuses and, and the crowd's reaction kind of just completed it for me. So... That's going to be the match tonight for me. Uh, and I enjoyed to watch that progression of his character. and Or both of their characters. Mm-hmm. Vader is this domineering force. And uh, Flair digging deep and growing to meet that. So, And MVP, Scorpion Hawk <laughs> is, is probably my favorite. May he ever reign. Uh, so actual MVP then? <laughs> oh, um, <laughs> it's got to be Flair. Um, I, mm-hmm. I, and I, I be, do that begrudgingly because I really do think that Flair's performance wouldn't have been great without Vader. And mm-hmm. I do appreciate Vader's commitment to beating up lockers and people's faces. Oh, yeah. And normally I would choose the Koloff or the Titan in this scenario but it's just something different it's not the same flair that i i've loathed it through some <laughs> I, I don't like the yeah the, you know and um i don't know the crowd won me over okay so my match of the night on just about any other night i would be giving this to Rhodes versus austin sure that was a tremendous match that had the misfortune of being on the same night as Flair versus Vader. Mm-hmm. 
Flair vs. Vader was just an amazing combination of match and storyline. It started out looking like it would go similarly to Sting vs. Vader. The announcers even start building up the wear-him-down-tire-him-out concept, but it doesn't go there. Instead, it suits Flair. He finds his moment, gives Vader a single flaw, and is always watching for a way to use that flaw to win. I really appreciate that. We had two tremendous matches based around Vader's unstoppability, and they felt really different, both based around the style of his opponent. Amazing crowd reaction and interaction, combined with a really epic storyline and the triumphant return of Ric Flair to Starcade, top it all off. And that makes it my clear choice for Match of the Night. My MVP? It's Ric Flair. Not to undervalue Vader's contributions, like you were saying, John. It is he, for one, who really works to make the crowd interactions part of the match. Absolutely. But this is Flair's night. If I were just looking at the match alone, I think I would go with Vader. He was so impressive, so dominating, so downright frightening, yet so capable of showing that one singular weakness that he nearly took MVP tonight. But Flair, too, put on an amazing performance in the match, making Vader look like a million bucks and bringing us the sheer pain and desperation he felt as the match went on. And beyond the match, he went to another level. Flair allowed me tonight to see him as a human being, willing to be vulnerable, to contemplate the meaning of the night's story to a depth that we don't often see. In and out of the storyline, this is Ric Flair proving that he still has what it takes. Those shots at the end, a truly grateful Flair overcome by emotion, but still managing to dedicate time to building up his opponent. Those were what finally made my choice for me. This is Flair's night, and Ric Flair is my MVP. And that wraps up our review of Starcade 93, 10th Anniversary. If you've enjoyed listening to us tonight, you can search for us on Twitter or Facebook as Let's Go to the Ring. Follow us for episode announcements and other show details, and share your own thoughts about the Starcades as we go through. And please, if you've enjoyed this show, give us a nice review on iTunes, and share the show through your favorite social media platforms to help others discover us. Many thanks to OSW Review for attendance and pay-per-view figures, and to Gina Trujillo for our new logo. Join us next time for Starcade 94. It's a triple threat. Three main events, nine less than Starcade 89. Come on, WCW, push yourselves. <laughs> Ric Flair returned from the WWF this show, but next time, there's another important arrival as we enter the Hogan era of WCW. This is Bob Moore for Alec Pridgen and John Mullins, signing off. Good night, everybody. Happy wrestling. Let's read up about the stinging hawk. 